All right, well, Suzanne and Kim are up early, so let's start with Suzanne. Good morning, Suzanne. Good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm doing well for this hour of the day. As I love to say, fortunately, you only have to sound awake. You don't have to look awake, but uh, I think the brain's functioning okay. So, so far, so good. How about you? I think my my brain is slowly waking up. <laughs> Listen, I, I've got a question about my blackberries. I have grown Robespierre blackberries for years. This is my second property to plant them mm-hmm. on. These particular plants are at least four years old, they may be five. I forgot what month I actually put them in the ground. Uh-huh. But what they have done for the last two years is they put up new canes shortly, well, when, after the first of the year, uh, over a slow period. And then those are not, they're not the canes from last year that right. bloom and produce the berries. So I go ahead and harvest the berries off the old canes, and these new canes then start to bloom themselves. And try and get the month right, early June. Yeah. And they actually put berries on. They're small berries, mm-hmm. uh, not just struggling, sort of just feeling like they're struggling. But then they, uh, they just never look very good. And my question is, should I just cut those bits, those off at the ground right now? Because I, my my understanding is that they will not bear again next spring. Uh, it's hard to say. And is this the only year they've done this? I realize you've just been there a short period of time, but have been there long enough to go through a full season to know if this is just an aberration or if this is something they've done consistently? This is a pattern. If this is at least the second year that they've done this. And I can tell you that my my yield, my blackberry crop this spring was really sad. Hmm. Uh, a lot of the canes, and I attributed that to the fact that I didn't water them enough once it got real hot left. Right, right. I lost, like on the old canes, the ones that were bearing. Mm-hmm. I lost about half the cane right. over the winter. Yeah, I, golly, I, you know, it's it's a tough call to make. I'm not sure um, whether or not those, did those canes have just a few flowers, uh, this June blooming? Is it just a few flowers or was it really a lot of flowers? It's not as heavy as the normal bloom, uh, but... Each each cane, and it's the canes are short because uh-huh. they've only been up. Right, right. Know, do you, do you uh, are are there several plants there, and they are all doing this, or is it uh, how many how many plants would you say you have there? I originally put in five plants, and since that time, there've been more come up uh-huh. that have died. I, I stay around five. Okay. I tell you what I would do. This is this is unusual for, you know, Roseboro or any other blackberry. And there's this has just been a weird year weather-wise. But if this has happened before, obviously there's a little bit more than that going on. I would, since I think you probably keep pretty good notes, 
I would take maybe half the plants and go ahead and cut them back to ground level and see if they will put on more canes, leave the other half, you know, alone and take, you know, careful notes uh, next spring. Because if these canes have have bloomed lightly, uh, then there's, you know, a good chance they could bloom again. It's this, you know, kind of the same as it is as some larger fruit trees and lemons and things like that. Occasionally they will bloom a little bit out of season, but it doesn't seem to really interfere with their blooming well at their more common season to bloom. So these canes are, you know, these vines, berries, whatever you want to call them, are... It's kind of an unusual thing, but I would, uh, you know, there's no way of really knowing, and I hate for you to leave them all long and then not have any berries next spring, except maybe what else new comes out. But if it were mine, I'd, you know, make a little diagram in my, my little garden notebook, and I would cut some of them back, and I would leave up some of the others long, and then I'd follow up, you know, with my notes next spring and see if, um, see if those canes rebloomed and produced additional berries, or if they just didn't produce any more. And uh, it would be good knowledge to have, and that'll tell you in the future whether to cut them all the way back if they do this or not. But I can't tell you why they're doing that. That's just, it's odd. If it was just the one year, I would blame it on something about the weather. But if they've done this more than once, um, hard to say what's going on there, but only way to really know is to cut some back, leave some others intact and then see what next spring brings. Make sense. It does make sense. Uh, and I'm, I'm willing to, yeah, I'm willing to gamble with half of them. Um, because just like you said, and and be a little more I'm careful sorry. about your watering you know it's just that most people don't realize how much water blackberries take but it's just uh it's just really a shame to lose established plants and therefore lose next uh spring's crop but i know how it is you see it is to do you get really busy and the Weather just suddenly turns hot and dry. My blackberries didn't need a drop of water from uh, about the 1st of January on. And then all of a sudden here we're really getting dry. And I've got to be absolutely certain that they do get that twice a week watering. So I'll, you know, have good growth this summer and good berries next spring. So uh, um, do what you can to be sure they, they don't go through drying out again. And I'll look forward to hearing I'm sure we'll talk before next spring, but I'll be interested to see, you know, what these canes do. I think they're probably going to bloom again, at least to some degree next spring, but uh, I'll be very interested in hearing. Okay. Let me ask a follow-up question. The soil that I have is sandy loam, Uh and it it dries out very quickly. Right. Uh, I was watering last, and I still am watering twice a week. Uh Uh-huh. But it's impossible for me to get my head underneath those plants to actually put my finger in the dirt to feel how dry it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking that I probably need to move it up to three times a week. I think I that probably be probably be a wise idea. And at some point, mulch them with a little bit of lava sand. Lava sand is going to help hold a little bit more moisture in there. And there are absolutely no negatives to it. It's going to do a number of good things for the plants. So just when you think about it, pick up a 40-pound bag of lava sand and spread it around. Don't, you know, physically get down and reach underneath those plants or you'll leave part of your skin behind when you come back. But uh, just sprinkle along the edge, take your rake, and just kind of push it in there and as they mulch over the ground. And uh, 
I think um, I think that will help maintain more moisture and everything gets better. All right. Very good. Thanks for the great advice. Yeah, it's I always always a pleasure. You have a great weekend. You Thanks, Suzanne. Bye. All right. Uh, next up is Kim. Then it will be Carol and John. Good morning, Kim. Good morning. Good morning. So I have uh, three questions. Okay. The first one is about a bird of paradise. It is the Strelitzia uh, regina. Yeah, Strelitzia regina. It's the, the tropical bird of paradise that has a purple and orange and multicolored flowers. Right. And um, it is the one that has really large leaves. Like some of them are like eight inches wide. Um, I have a friend that has more of the narrow leaf that I've seen a lot in has, California. Has yours, so. has yours bloomed for you yet? No. Okay. Never bloomed. It, I suspect but. you're looking at Strelitzia nicolii, which is the white tropical bird of paradise, which has much bigger leaves, grows much taller, and has kind of a blue and white flower. That that would be a very unusual leaf for Strelitzia regina, but it would be very common leaf for Nicolii. And uh, only way well, you go ahead. This came with a little sticker in the in the <laughs> you know, and that's where I'm. And it could be mislabeled. I uh, yeah, I was going to say you trust that sticker. There's some oceanfront property in Arizona. I want to talk to you about too. Yeah. Well, it, it, I mean, it's like propagated with one of those, you know, garden tropics, bird of right. paradise, and then right. that's what it lists. But the problem I have is that the leaves keep curling upward, and some of them are so curled, they're curled all the way into each other. You can't even see the flat part of the leaf. And so my friend thought it was getting too much sun, even though it wasn't in full sun, and I put it to where it just is very shady but gets a lot of light and it's still curling is it do you have it inside or outside it's outside okay is it too hot um it's oh gosh you know they will take a lot of heat but they're happiest i mean they're they're happiest in northern california where it never gets really cold and never gets really hot but um, right. it, wind will do that more than anything. I think if I were going to grow that, I would want it where it got full morning sun, but maybe some afternoon shade. But I would I would have it out of the wind because the wind dries things out, and it can cause that sort of unusual growth. Look at it carefully for aphids. Um, they're not common on the uh, on the bird of paradise, but that can also mm-hmm. cause that leaf curling. How how tall is this plant? How big is it overall? No, it's in like maybe three feet. Okay, okay. Um, it's still small. I bought it. It was in like a a one gallon pot, and okay. then when I got it, I haven't had it that long. And are the leaves sort of point upwards? They don't sort of flatten outward as they grow. They is it's a very upright growing plant. Yes, it's, okay. it's pretty upright. Yeah, I want you to look up white bird of paradise, and botanically it's Strelitzia nicolii. I think it's N-I-C-O-L-I-I or something like that, and see if that doesn't match more carefully what you have. It's an interesting plant. It's going to get very large. It's going to get 8 to uh, 10 feet tall 
whereas your regular bird of paradise uh, is going to stay much smaller. But I think you have a I think you have a different plant than what you than what you purchase. But that's not necessarily oh, well. a bad thing. But I, ideally, I'd say morning sun, afternoon shade. Um, feed regularly with uh, any of the good organic uh, liquid fertilizers, and um, I suspect the the kind of the aberrant leaf growth. Maybe due to kind of a wide swing in humidity, or it may be due to wind. Um, but as yeah, far as the amount okay. of sun, yeah, morning sun's fine. But I think I keep it out of the hot afternoon sun. Yeah, I have, I have not had it in the afternoon sun. Okay. Um, so that brings me to another question you brought up with the um, liquid fertilizer. I bought some because I had heard you talking about that your potted plants you like to give the liquid fertilizer, and I right. bought the Fox Farm. Big uh-huh. bloom because I have a Bermantia that I moved into the part shade and it's doing much better. <laughs> Very good. But it still hasn't it still hasn't bloomed now. Well, Bro- is it too hot? To, Brugmancia is no. Brugmancias are day length sensitive. Most Brugmancias bloom spring and fall. They are much more short day okay. bloomers. Very unusual to have them in bloom in the middle of the summer. So keep doing what you're doing. Okay. When the days start getting shorter, you'll have flowers. But I put it won't hurt to to fertilize it. No, I feed it every couple of weeks. Okay, so because I got the big bloom, the Fox Farm big mm-hmm. bloom, is that a that's all right? Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. If if I were doing it, I'd probably alternate it with something like Has to Grow by Medina. Um, the okay. big bloom is a little less nitrogen than I'd really like to see, but it's fine. It's you know Fox Farm's good company; they make good products. Okay, and then my last question was about um, jicamas. I asked you about them. Well, I heard you talking about them. I had been trying to grow them, and you were talking about being a vine. Yeah. And so I put something up for them to vine up, but they're very, very slow, and I don't know if it's in a raised bed. I've been watering it every day because it does dry out. Yeah, don't don't Which get carried away with watering. Probably every other day is going to be plenty. Feed those guys regularly, too. They like it hot. You know, it's been a cool spring, but uh, they we've got another two good warm months to go, but I don't want you to keep them too wet. I want you to water real thoroughly when you water, but uh, every other day should be enough on those. Okay, and what should I be uh, feeding that with? Because my vegetables I've been feeding with the, the Happy Frog uh, tomato and vegetable fertilizer. Uh-huh. Is that that's on those. Yeah, that's that's fine. But next time you buy a good nursery, I, I think it's it's very good to kind of alternate fertilizers and don't necessarily stick with the same one all the time. Mm-hmm. But uh, I get a at least a quart of the Medina, Medina has to grow. It's got a little more nitrogen right. in it, and I would just sw- in, you know put that into your fertilizing rotation, and I think you'll probably see a little bit better growth, a little bit darker green uh, in the leaves. Okay, great. All right, thank you so much. Well, you're sure welcome. Thanks for the call, and let me know let me know what the, how that uh, bird of paradise turns out. <laughs> If it ever blooms. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you, Kim. Bye. Bye. Okay, uh, next up is Carol. Good morning, Carol. Hey, Bob. How do I get rid of Wandering Jew? Do I use the orange oil treatment? Is this the big old purple one? 
the uh, what? Yes. Okay. Well, kind of green. It's more green. Than, I have purple. I'm not. I don't want to get rid of the purple. I want to get rid of it. It's mostly greenish. Okay. And is this the one with the big leaves that are maybe yes. no inch and a half wide and three or four inches long? Yes. Okay. Yeah, there are about 15 different plants called Wandering Jew. Um, What you have, literally, you're going to have to dig it out or go with a grubbing hole or something. Uh, It's a set crazy if you were to look it up. And they have like a real fine hair on the leaves, real fine, uh, it's called pubescence. And it, it causes things like your orange oil and vinegar to bead up on the leaf and it will burn it, but it will not kill it. It just doesn't get up real good contact with the leaf. So much as I hate to say it because I've, I've had a patch of this, you know, that keeps trying to get out of hand for the past 10 years, but uh, a little a little effort with a grubbing hole on a cool morning is going to be, I think, the only way you're really going to totally get rid of it. Okay, because it's really easy to pull up. And yeah, the problem is it comes, comes right, right back. back. Comes right back. Right. Okay. And then I have a nine-year-old Chinese pistachio tree, and I want to know: Is it better to water at the drip line at the end of the branches or at the trunk on the ground? It's recent studies by the international arboricultural people are finding that a tree actually takes most of its water up closer to the trunk. Now, as far as nutrient, I think it probably more of it's out toward the drip line. But as far as water uptake, they're telling me that virtually all the water uptake is within five to ten feet of the trunk. Oh, so okay. I'd I'd fertilize the whole area, but I'd concentrate my watering a little closer toward the trunk. All right, and how often should I water established lantanas? Well, lantanas are drought tolerant, but if you want them to really grow and bloom, I'm probably going to be watering them twice a week. And if the soil's real loose and open, maybe three times a week. I look at some of the commercial plantings I see, uh, especially around some of the Bill Millers and places like that, and I know they're watering all the time, and my gosh, the plants just bloom, bloom, bloom. Lantana will survive a huge amount of drought, but it stops blooming. So I'm going to be watering them two to three times a week if they're in the ground, probably more than that if they're in pots. Oh, my goodness. Okay, all right. Well, thank you very much. Like I say, they're not going to die if you stop watering, but if you want them covered with uh, flowers all summer long, water a little bit more, feed a little bit more, and they'll sure respond. So that's how these businesses have – that's why they have theirs looking so good, right? (laughs) Bingo. You got it. (laughs) Okay. Thanks, Bob. You're welcome, Carol. Thank you. Bye. All right. uh, John's next, and it'll be Sid. Good morning, John. Good morning, Bob. Nice to know there's some guys uh, up as well as all the ladies this morning. (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm driving to San Marcos to go to work. (laughs) There you go. You know how that goes, driving every day. Um, I've got a uh, mountain laurel that I bought this year in a one-gallon pot and put it in. It was looking great. And last night I walked by it, and I noticed that uh, it's got like a web on it. And the daggum thing got something eating the leaves. I don't yeah. think anything could touch those things. Well, uh, when they get a little stressed, uh, they get a little caterpillar gets in there and eats on the leaves. How often are you watering it? 
Uh, well, I've heard you talk about not over watering and not taking too good care, so I haven't been watering it, but about every two and a half, maybe three weeks. Okay. When the plant is mature, that's going to be plenty of water. It's okay. a youngster, though, that hasn't really gotten its roots spread out. You're going to need to be watering probably at least once a week and watering very thoroughly. Uh, you can spray a little BT out there. You can spray a little spinosad. You'll kill those caterpillars pretty easily. But uh, mountain laurels don't usually have a problem like that unless they're stressed. And okay. quite frankly, I see it more from being too much water than too little but a young plant like that, every two and a half weeks isn't enough, especially now that we've gotten into much uh, drier weather. Okay, that sounds good. Is there any way you can push those a little bit like any other tree as far as fertilizer and water to get it to grow a little faster, or is it pretty much going to do what it wants to do? Well, you know, you definitely will. It will grow faster with regular care as compared to what it's getting in nature. But don't overdo it. I mean, don't be going with any of these uh, high nitrogen, chemically derived fertilizers. But uh, if you will... If you will feed it a little more frequently, I mean, if you would get one of the liquid organic fertilizers like we talk about, and, uh, you know, if you feed that thing every two to four weeks, if you'll give it that thorough deep soaking uh, once a week or so, yeah, it will put on a lot more growth and still be good, strong, vigorous growth. Uh, it'll, it'll grow a lot faster than it will in nature. Now, if we had just the ideal year in nature, you know, the nature's going to keep up with you. But, you know, Texas, it's most yeah. years it's going to be hot, it's going to be dry, it's going to be stressful. And only one out of 500 seeds that those mountain laurels drop is ever going to sprout and grow into a mature plant. So, um, yeah, you can uh, you can certainly encourage them to grow a little bit more quickly. Okay. Well, that's exactly what I needed to know then. I just was worried about doing a little bit too much care for it. So I well, heard you talking about so many people yeah. having stress because... Yeah, let's let's get the Goldilocks effect. Let's get right in the middle there where everything's real good. All right. You are talking about lantanas earlier, watering them. You know, I've got a place in Medina County where I keep honeybees. I've got wild lantana up there just growing like crazy and blooming. Oh, yeah. It's just amazing. <laughs> it's a, it, it is amazing stuff. And uh, once they're, you know, in their right environment, uh, there's just not much of anything. Anything goes wrong with them. They're, they're real survivors. So, uh um what can you say something that blooms a lot of the time the newer varieties are better because they bloom more let's just get right to it uh good morning sid hi bob good morning three three questions for you okay so first i did i had a lot of peaches on my trees this year and the what do you call them bushy trail bushy tail tree rats got them all first Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm fighting them in my garden now. The little such-and-sos are stealing tomatoes, stealing peppers. Uh, they, they're, we're going to have to have, we're going to have to have a little, uh, a little more live trapping going on here in my world very shortly. But yeah, I know what you're talking about. So is there any, I mean, I've looked at these squirrels are very smart and they can climb around anything I can put on the tree, right? It depends. It depends on how much. Well, it depends on how much trunk you have. If you've got uh, four or five feet of bare trunk, you can put a squirrel guard, you know, three feet up the trunk, and you know that will stop them. But my trees, I have them branched low so I can pick without getting up on a ladder. 
And those blasted right. things can stand flat-footed on the ground and uh, jump as high as Tim Duncan can. You know, they just pop straight up maybe three feet. Wow. If your trees are higher than that, though, uh, those guards that you put around the trunk will work. There is one that kind of fans out. Uh, and then there are others where people just put a, you know, just use a slick piece of metal just wrapped around the trunk for 10 right, or 12 inches. Right. But it's got to be well up the tree or the, the blasted squirrels will jump, you know, over it to get up there. I And, you know, who can blame them? A ripe peach is, uh, is worth going to a little bit of trouble to get, but they sure, it sure is frustrating. I'm, I'm even thinking about, I've resisted so far, but... Uh, uh, somebody brought by and showed me one of these traps they call the squirrelinator that is uh, can catch several squirrels at one time. And um, I, I think somebody may get $100 of my money because I'm getting desperate. Now, that I'm worried about my apples, too. And so I guess the peaches don't ripen once I pick them. Is that right? That's correct. Apples do ripen after you pick right. them, but peaches right. and plums do not. It's called... Technically, if you ever look that up, it's called climateric versus non-climateric fruit. But apples and pears ripen off the tree. Peaches and plums do not. They just get softer. Well, I've got apples and pears, so good. But when should I pick these apples? Because I don't want to pick them, you know, because it's green a little bit still. Sure. Are these going to ripen in August, or am I going to have to wait till September? Oh, it depends on what variety you have. And I can't say I know every apple out there, but... Um, I yeah, I would, um, I probably would leave them on the tree into September unless, until, unless you start having a real problem with either birds or squirrels because, uh, birds will go after ripe fruit, but it's fruit as well. You can stop yeah. them with some of that bird netting, but, uh, uh, about the time you start seeing varmint activity and, and that's the thing too, about apples and pears, they're not going to just going to strip the tree peaches. I've seen a tree loaded with peaches one night without one single peach on it the next day. It's just like they go crazy over it. But uh, I've not yeah. seen that happen with, happen with apples or pears. So do keep a close eye on them. And if you start losing fruit, uh, I think I'd go ahead and pick. One last here. I know I don't want to take up all your time, but I'm having a real problem with I've never seen so many pears as I had this year. Right. And the branches were bending over and they were on the ground in fact a bit i had a branch break off yeah um and i've picked hundreds of peaches off the tree or pears off the trees to try to you know so they won't have more break um when can i how do i trim a pear tree back so i got bigger diameter branches that can you know hold up well you really don't prune pears or apples um, okay. uh, because right. it makes the new growth that comes out is much more much more susceptible to bacterial fire blight. Um, okay. So the, what you're doing as far as you know just picking some of the fruit off is probably the best thing to do. And this is an unusual year. I mean, pears can frequently load up, but this year they just have. Uh, you know, have just gone overboard. Wow. <laughs> if the the limbs will get a little stronger, if you will, kind of force them to grow a little bit wider out, a little bit less straight up. What some people do is they will actually take a piece of wood and put a big notch 
in each end of it um, and, you know, and just kind of slide down there to where they push the limb out. It also many times increases the blooming. I've seen other people uh, take those big old heavy weights. You know what a downrigger ball is? Are you a lake yeah, fisherman? Yeah. Uh, actually yeah. hang those out on the branches to pull those branches outward. And that seems to strengthen the branches. It also seems to increase the fruit set when that limb is growing more horizontally than it is vertically. So those okay. are things you can do that will will help to strengthen those branches, getting them get them growing naturally in a little bit more outward fashion. But uh, pruning that's going to be a pretty bad idea because uh, you're just encouraging disease problems if you prune much on them. Well, thank you. Now, I've, I've said them last, but I forgot I had one more. Okay. Uh, is, is it okay to plant? I lost a bunch of peaches because a guy that put a lot of them in for me set the watering too high and they just drowned. Yeah. Uh, is it okay to uh, put peaches in right now, this time of year? If you can find, if you can find good trees. Um, okay. yeah, there, there are a couple of big peach growers now that are producing, uh, selling the trees in pot rather than selling them to the new right. uh, nurseries bare root. And, um, it's just going to be a matter of checking around. Fanix is always going to be your best place to check first, but, uh, so long as you're there to maintain them, uh, and I would not plant bare root trees at this time of the year. Don't go mail order and right. something, but, um, trying to remember the name of the grower and it doesn't come to my mind right this second but uh if they've got some good containerized trees that are appropriate for your chilling zone uh and if you're going to be in town to water them i wouldn't hesitate to plant them this afternoon thank you it is a pleasure you will be safe out on the road and uh we'll talk again sid thanks for the call this morning bye Mm -hmm. bye all right uh next up is sue and then it'll be wayne good morning sue good morning good morning so I'd like to see if this idea would fly. I would like to add a grapevine to my chicken scape with the purpose that during the summer I could train it in the corner so that it might give some shade in that area. Uh-huh. Um, I'd also like to use the leaves because I ferment pickles. And But I'm, you know, down the road, it's not so important that it produces fruit. <laughs> but if I were going to get one... Mm-hmm. which one would be like a table grape, not for winemaking? Um, we're just talking one plant here. Yeah, pro- Champanel is still going to be. Okay. We're, we're limited in grape varieties that do well here, largely because of uh, uh, something called Pierce's disease that uh, gets so many grapes. But Champanel is resistant. It uh, is very leafy. It's resistant to uh, many of the fungal diseases that get on a lot of grape varieties. Uh, it is a seeded grape. It is a good table grape, but it does have a seed. But you're not going to be getting any grapes anyway because the chickens are going to eat them all. But <laughs> well, you think now I have to keep this up high because you yeah. know they'll decimate that plant. Yeah, uh, you you and... you watch them jump and flap and pick them off the vine out of the air. <laughs> <laughs> it you're going to have well, some more entertainment. Okay. I, I don't think they're going to damage the vine. Although I would. You know, where you plant it in the ground, I would give it some protection right, right around that because you're going to be water and they're going to be scratching where it's nice, moist soil looking for bugs and oh, everything yeah. else. But uh, no, I, Champanel would definitely be the variety I would choose. Okay. How long do you think it takes to, and do you have them? I mean, or. Yeah, I'd have to look like out a, there. We go through okay, so many call. plants, sure. but. Uh, 
Um, it's it's possible to get uh, fruit on them first year. Really? Okay. Yeah, and like I said, the fruit. You know, watching the chickens eat it would be funny too. That's, that's fine. <laughs> well, Champanel is just really well adapted. It's a vigorous grower, and uh, it's a good wine grape as well as a good table grape, and would create a lot of shade. So I think it's going to be a very right. multifunctional plant for you. So you think I could do just one plant in the corner? It would have to go up about six feet. And yeah. then, oh, you know, I've seen vines out. where there is one one vine, you know, covering a whole tree uh, in nature. Some of the old native okay. Mustang grapes and things. If it were me, I'd probably plant, you know, two vines on opposite corners just because okay. I would get the shade for the chickens more quickly. Sure. But if you're a patient person and with patient chickens, you know, one vine eventually <laughs> is going to going to cover the entire coop. But uh um, if it were me, I'd, I'm impatient enough. I'd probably put yeah. two of them at opposite corners. And, uh, and also that way, if something happens to one of them, you've still got one of them to grow and, uh, you're not starting all over from the beginning. Well, cool. Well, thank you. That's, that's all I had today. Well, you get out and have a good weekend and I'm sure we'll Will talk do. again, Sue. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Well, I say good morning, Wayne. Good morning, sir. Morning. Hey, I live up in your part of the world. And I have some mountain laurels. Okay. And uh, the worms are, are really hurting them. I've sprayed them four different times, and a week later, it seems like the worms are back again. Any hint? Are these uh, ones that you planted, or are these in spots and places that Mother Nature planted them? Good question. I'm the third owner of the house. Okay. I uh, Again, the caterpillars in the mountain laurels are a sign of stress. And there are several things that can create that stress. Uh, probably most common is water issues, uh, either too much or too little. And quite frankly, up until we you know, really started drying off here from early July on, uh, mountain laurels were a little bit wetter than they really liked this spring, and that has led to some problems with caterpillars. They also will get stressed if whoever planted them buried them too deeply. Uh, root flare is not quite as obvious in a mountain laurel as it is in an oak tree or something like that. But I would be looking at the base of those where they come up. I know they make multiple trunks in most cases. But you should still see a little bit of kind of trunk area down at the bottom. You should see where the roots start flaring out. And if that's not the case, you probably need to remove a little bit of soil right around the base of the tree. I suspect the caterpillars are going to be less of an issue moving into this hotter, drier weather I mean, I've had, what, less than two-tenths of an inch of rain all of July, where I think in May I had nine or ten inches. So I I think what you're looking at, like say, is more stress than anything else. Be sure you're not compounding the problem by giving them you know, much additional water because after, after several years, I mean, those, those mountain laurels should only need help from you if we go for you know, three months or so without rain. Um, if you're spraying, you said you've sprayed four times. Have you been spraying with BT or what have you been spraying with? BT, sir. And have you added any molasses to it? No, sir. BT, of course, is a bacterial poison. Molasses is a very strong bacterial stimulant. And I don't know why I've never been able to get anybody to put it in the instructions. But if you will add the equivalent of about a teaspoon or two teaspoons of molasses per 
gallon of spray. It makes your BT literally about 20 times, and that's not exaggerating, about 20 times more effective. So if if you're going to spray again, you probably will need to make one more spraying. Uh, add some molasses to your mix uh, this time. I think you'll find that it does a better job of knocking the caterpillars out. And um, like I say, with us getting drier, check the base of the of the trees for to be sure that root flare is exposed. And I think this is just going to be a temporary situation because mount laurels don't normally have the caterpillar issues unless they're stressed. But there are lots of different possibilities for stress this year, more than anything having, you know, just probably... 60% above our, our typical rainfall for the spring. So right. that's the primary thing that's doing it. Okay. The, the, when I bought the house, I'm the, uh, I've been here five years, and uh, the one of the owners planted rocks in the flower bed. Okay. So I need to pull all the rocks away also? The rocks are not a problem unless they, uh, the, unless they put one of these, quote, weed block fabrics underneath it, and that is a big problem. Uh, check and see whether it's a woven fabric. Oh, I just can't tell you how those things mess up the soil underneath. Um, if you find that there is either plastic or this woven weed cloth stuff underneath it, in that case, pull the rocks back, get rid of the fabric, and then you can put the rocks back. The rocks aren't causing any problem, but most people putting out rocks are putting something bad underneath those rocks. I'm glad you mentioned that. Okay. What do you do with the little bitty mountain laurels that are growing with about three feet around the tree, the base of the tree? <laughs> it's up to you. You could let them grow. Uh, again, you know, I live up in the hill country, and, and mountain laurels are one of my most common plants, and they just sometimes just grow as a big clump. Uh, if you want, while they are very small, you can dig them and transplant them, or you can dig them and put them in pots, grow them out a while and transplant them. They are transplantable when they're, you know, that six inches tall, or else you can just leave them alone and let them grow up, make a bigger, thicker clump. Okay, sir. Thank you. Last question, if you don't mind. Certainly. Uh, I have some, uh, 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 single palms. Okay. And they have about five heads, five balls, whatever you want to call them, growing around. If uh-huh. I only want one, what's the best way to do it? A uh, machete <laughs> or a saw. Okay. Um, <clears throat> keep okay. in mind, though, that you obviously have a fairly mature sago. And has it ever bloomed for you? Do you know if yes, it's... Yes, every year. Okay. Um, and as you've probably noticed, when it blooms, the, the heads that make the flowers don't put on many new growths, especially if you have a female plant. So one nice thing about having several heads to the plant is that you're going to have nice green foliage all the time, whereas if you've got a plant that's blooming all the time, and especially if we get a freeze along with that, um, you can be pretty bare for a while there. But uh, the side branches, are they right down toward the base of the plant or are they farther up the trunk? Uh, base of the plant, sir. Okay. If we're in that time of year, we're in the hot time of the year, if you want to separate those out, and even if they have virtually no roots on them, you can pot them up, and uh, nine out of ten of them will form roots, and you'll have a new plant if you'd like to have some additional sagos. But um, it's, it's totally up to you. You can remove them and discard them. You can uh, remove them and pot them up, or... Um, like I say, you can let it make a multi-headed, multi-trunked plant. 
Uh, but that's totally up to you. I understand if uh, they're in a confined space, you may not have room to let them make the big plant they want to try to make. But uh, this problem of, of sometimes they're skipping a year or even two years putting on any growth when they do bloom, um, that that's always an issue to consider. And if they have multiple heads, uh, only the heads that bloom are going to stop making some new growth. So it just makes for a longer, uh, more attractive plant long term. Okay, sir. Thanks so much. It is always a pleasure. I appreciate the call this morning. You have a great weekend, Wayne. You too. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Bye. All right. uh, Next up is Donna. Good morning, Donna. Good morning. Good morning. Sounds like you're on the road this morning. I I am on the road. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a question about avocado plants. Okay. Um, I have a couple of avocado plants that I've grown from seed. One's about, and they're in pots outside. Um, one's about five feet five, and the other one's about half that size. Okay. And um, the bigger one I've had for like four years, um, never had any fruit or anything. But um, what I was wanting to know is should I move them in, out of the pots and into the ground? Okay, good question. Um, You've got about another five years to wait before you're going to see any fruit because it's not a matter of size. It's a matter of maturity. Um, Those trees have to get to a certain level of maturity before they can reproduce, which is, uh, you know, basically like an animal or anything else. Until it matures, it's not going to be able to make seed, as it were. And with avocados, it's usually 8 to 10 years before they are physiologically mature enough to make fruit. The bad thing, the bad thing we've got going here is when you are growing them from those seeds you or the ones that you turned into guacamole or some other wonderful substance, (laughs) those avocados are not cold hardy. And unless you have a very protected area to plant them, I mean, there was one downtown at the old Ursuline Academy for probably 20 years growing in a very protected little alcove, made a big, beautiful tree with lots of avocados on it every year. But the Haas varieties, the Calavos, all these things you're getting at the store, they're going to really suffer at 30 degrees, and chances are, you know, we, we're going to have that virtually every winter. There are a right. number of new, I mean, they don't they don't always look the same, but, you know, if you close your eyes, taste test is the same. There are some new varieties, what they call Mexican avocados, that once they've been in the ground a couple of years, had a chance to make some woody bark, they will take temperatures down into the upper teens without damage. So, um they're they're going to do better in the ground than they are in pots, but unless you have a very protected area to plant them, you're going to spend a lot of time trying to cover them and protect them in the winter months. But it's totally up to you. Right. I mean, I'm all in favor of avocados and a lot of other things that are not totally cold-hardy, but you just need to know what you're up against. You, you are going to wait a few more years for them to produce, and you are going to have to protect them in the winter months. But this is, you know, compared to... Compared to the commercially grown trees, whether they're citrus or anything else, when they are grafted onto a different rootstock, as long as they have used mature wood to graft onto it, those trees can produce fruit the first year or two, even if they're fairly small trees. But growing it from the seed, you've got that long wait for them to reach maturity before you have the hope of having avocados. 
Okay. Yeah, I've always brought them um, either inside the house during the, uh-huh. in the when it's going to freeze or uh, covered up yes. out on the, underneath the porch. But um, I just wondered if it, at what point should I plant them? The leaves, um, the older leaves are kind of starting to turn yellow, even though the new leaves coming out are still real green. They've, they've so gotten I don't know if the roots are getting bound or what. They, they've gotten a little too dry at some point. And the okay. the more root bound they become, the faster they use water, and the more of a tendency they will have to get a little too dry sometime. I had a friend in San Antonio years ago who basically built a big greenhouse, and it wasn't an avocado, but he he wanted grapefruit, and he got a very cold sensitive uh, grapefruit uh, tree. But he built his greenhouse over and picked about two bushels of grapefruit every year. So just kind of depends on how much you're, how anxious you are to grow your own avocados. Best thing you could possibly do would be to build a greenhouse structure of some sort over them and plant them in the ground. Oh, okay. All righty. Well, I appreciate your information. Hey, as always, it's a pleasure. You be safe out there and call me again when you think of something else I can help you with. All right, I sure will. Thanks, Donna. <laughs> Bye. All right, bye. So, uh, good morning, Fred. Hey, good morning, Bob. How you doing? I'm um, well, sir. How about yourself? I'm doing fine, thank you. Good. Hey, uh, I got in just at the end of the y'all talking about that sago bomb. Right. Um, I don't know. About a month or two ago, I called you and told you I planted seventy one of those seeds. Right. And yeah, I'm not having any good luck with them, but I'm still watering them and just hoping I get a couple out of there. But um, and I caught the very end of it. What were y'all talking about? You know that. You know, because I get those sprouts that come up, and, I mean, they, they grow super quick around the trunk of the tree. Mm-hmm. But I've, I've been trimming those off. Did I hear that you can plant those or yeah. transplant those? Yeah, you can, uh, uh, in the hot months of the year, July, August, you can take huh? those off, and they're not going to have many roots. But you go ahead and bury that, you know, that ball, as it were, an inch deep down into the ground or so. Put a stake in against them or something to anchor them in place. I helped a fellow a few years back uh, divide one, and I think we took 27 pups off of that thing, and uh, all but two of them rooted and grew. So, yes, you can very definitely, you know, plant. But it has to be in the hot time of the year. It has to be July, August, the time to do it, and uh, you should be pretty successful. But don't give up on your seeds. Um, Like I think I've probably told you, uh, the commercial guys, they will take and plant 100 seeds in a tray, and some of those seeds may sprout quickly. Some of them may sit there for a year or longer before they begin to sprout and grow. So don't give up on your seeds. But if okay. you want to root some of those new plants coming off the base, uh, certainly a good time to do it. So basically just take a, a good sharp saw and cut a, a that little knot off of there? Is that, is that what you're basically That's saying? That's a saw, a machete, whatever. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, heavy gloves because those things have nice little spines on there and always eye yeah. protection. But uh, yeah, yeah you'll good. you'll find what you can do is uh, just in effect nick it real good with the saw, and then the the little pups as they call them will just kind of break off. Okay, all right, and then um, you know I I was out at your place so at the same time uh, a couple months ago, and I bought one of that that coral bean. Yeah. And and that thing has grown way bigger than I expected. <laughs> oh man, that thing! I bet you it's five foot tall and five foot diameter with okay. all the sprouts coming out of it, and the hummingbirds do like it. Yeah. Now, uh, you know that stalk on that thing is probably already about 
probably three inch in diameter, if not maybe a little bit more, uh-huh. uh, which, which I did not expect it to get that big, but I'm good with it. But does that die back in the wintertime? If we have a cold winter, down in maybe 26, 27, it's not going to, but uh, uh, where I live in Bernie, I, I, we used to have one over by a big greenhouse we had there, and that would freeze the ground every year but come right back out. So okay. here in town, some years it's going to freeze back, some years not. When it does, just cut off the portion that's frozen, and it will come out, and you will continue to get those most unusual flowers. Yeah, yeah, they that's exactly right, but hummingbirds do like it, and that's what I got it for. Oh yeah, um, but yeah, I appreciate that uh, that uh, the sago palm because I'm I've been doing them seeds, but I'm going to go ahead and I guess now's a good time. I mean, we're pretty good heat yep. going on now. Is that yep. would that be good? Yes, it's it's the best time of year if you're going to take some little ones off the sides and like I say, just keep them moist. I'd have them in the shade, but uh, hot weather is when they grow roots, and so uh, yeah, take off what you like. Have the the base of that thing about an inch deep down in the soil. Have it anchored in place. Now, some of the green fronds that are on the ones that you take off, they're going to yellow and brown. That's perfectly normal. But, okay. uh, you know, 9 out of 10 of them are going to sprout roots and grow. Very nice. I appreciate that. You have a good day, and I'll uh, be talking to you soon. I will look forward to it. Thank you Thank very you. much, Fred. Bye. All right, I have two Toms, both of them with 210 area code. So all I can tell you, when you hear the click, the slight change in volume, you're the Tom I'm talking to, and that would be right now. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. I uh, appreciate all your uh, information, Bob. My pleasure. The the, uh, question I have today is uh, on seeds. Generally, I know you take, like, uh, the pride of Barbados, and you treat that some way before you plant it, and you get very good uh, percentage of uh, germination. Right. Is there any general practice you do with any seeds that, uh, uh, like, if I'm going to plant beans, do you soak them or coat them in any way or you know, any any? Most seed, I uh, you know, I use uh, the Garrett juice, uh, Howard Garrett's formula. I buy the you know already made up stuff, uh, but you know you can always go to dirtdoctor.com and get the uh, formula, so to speak, and make it yourself. And as a general rule, I find that uh, soaking the seeds briefly, you know, ten fifteen minutes in a Garrett juice solution. Um, will very definitely speed up sh- uh, sprouting. Now, a couple of uh, additional things. If it is a very hard seed, like the Pride of Barbados, like a Mount Laurel, uh, if it's a really, really tough seed, uh, if you can scratch it lightly, you're not trying to saw a hole in the side of the seed, but scratching it to break through that waxy coating, that will very definitely speed the germination time up. Um, in seeds like blue bonnets, what the, the commercial guys do that want them to all germinate the first year, they will throw that seed in like a gem tumbler, put a little carborundum in there and tumble them briefly just to scratch the seed because mother nature plants that, that tend to grow in harsher climates, nature puts a very tough coating on the seed because it needs to be able to lie there sometimes for several years without drying out. 
you know, before the conditions are ripe for it to sprout and grow. We just speed it up by kind of breaking that waxy coat. But things like uh, beans and peas and corn and okra, uh, I, d- I just use that little bit of a um, uh, Garrett juice soak and very, very fine seed like lettuce or something like that, where it's very difficult to soak it and then separate it out. I will plant it, but then I will I will water it in good with some Garrett juice and it seems to speed up the sprouting. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I I just like the pride of Barbados being a hard seed, correct? Yeah, yeah with a hard seed like that, I would... 24 hours. Huh? Um, I, what I would do is, is scratch it lightly, a fingernail file, a little triangular file. If you know somebody has a gem tumbler and you want to do a bunch of them, you can do it that way. I even have one friend that said he puts them... Uh, <laughs> He, he just he, he takes a pair of pliers and hangs onto the seed and just just for a very brief instant he'll put it up against a grindstone um, uh, spinning grindstone wow. just to scratch it a little bit. It's <laughs> hard. Yeah, yeah, they're they're very hard seeds, but uh, if you can just scratch them lightly and then give them that Garrett juice soak for thirty minutes or so. Um, I, I don't think they want to stay in for a long period of time. I think it's the apple cider vinegar in there is one of the things that helps speed, speed up. I'll try to remember to ask Howard that uh, when we talk in a little while. But but for me, it's usually somewhere between uh, 10 and 20 minutes is about how long I'm going to be soaking the seed. And I, I don't think it would be really good to, to leave them in there for up to 24 hours. But I'll, I'll ask the man that came up with Garrett juice, that being Howard Garrett, I'll, I'll ask him how he, he feels about that. Uh, I'm writing a note on my log okay. now, Garrett juice soak. So uh, I'll get an answer for you there. But for me, I'm going to scratch Thanks. him first and uh, then just soak him for a briefer period. Thanks a lot. I appreciate the call. It's always a pleasure, Tom. Thank you for the call, and we'll talk again. And now I'll talk to the second Tom. Good morning, sir. Well, good morning, Bob. Good morning. Uh, Hey, I had a question about my peach trees. I heard you talking about uh, peaches just being gone off the trees, and I had that very experience this Mm -hmm. year. And I'm on a trapping program. I've trapped five raccoons in the last month or so. (laughs) But, uh, um, you know, we have two, pardon me, two peach trees. And we probably had about 100 peaches on them. And it was about two weeks before they would be ready to mm-hmm. pick. And I went out one morning, and they were not pecked. They were not on the ground. They were just gone, yep. every single one. Yep. I was just wondering, um, besides trapping, how do the commercial growers take care of that problem? Uh, shooting. Okay, wish I could do that. Yeah, <laughs> just, just. Well, I don't know if you if you get the proper applications. You know, these suppressors are. <laughs> no, it's uh, uh, no. They they have uh, very extensive, uh, hopefully humane, but they 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 have an elimination program. I I have a trap and take somewhere else program, but uh, yeah. um, they're an awful lot of. There, there are a lot of different ways, but but physical removal, whether it's temporary or permanent. Uh, I'm thinking of the guy, a friend of mine, who uh, caught five hogs at one time, you know, in his trap last week. And the next picture he sent me was uh, the bucket on his tra- tractor full of uh, full of dead hogs. So yeah, some people just shoot them in the cage to get rid of them. But uh, whatever you do, I. It's it's like they send out a message, and it's kind of like having ripe corn in your garden. 
Uh, they, I'd like to say they invented the internet a long time before Al Gore. They sent out a message and I've seen 20, 30 coons show up for the party for ripe peaches and ripe corn. So, okay. uh, the other thing of course is electricity. That's what I do the years I choose to grow corn. I uh, will put a double strand of electric wire. And electric wire these days doesn't have to be that high tensile, hard to bend stuff. You can actually get a polyethylene or polypropylene cord that has the little fine wires woven through it uh, that is so easy to put up on one of the little fiberglass stakes. And uh, you can create a, a barrier against them uh, just with a fence charger. So I don't know if that's really practical with your peach trees, but it sure does work well on the corn. And uh, I go one step further during corn season. I go out every night with a hose and I wet down the ground underneath the electric fence to be sure they make real good contact with moist soil. (laughs) (laughs) And call me sadistic, but I love lying up there in that upstairs bedroom with the window open and hearing that scream when I know the the raccoon just found the electricity. It's not going to hurt them, but it sure does get their attention and it sure does make them go somewhere else. (laughs) Well, okay. Well, thanks. So I guess I'm doing the right thing, trapping them. I trap it and remove them, but you just, you need to do it year round. And if you wait until the peaches are approaching ripeness, uh, there are going to be a few of them going to beat you. And if you only got two traps and four raccoons show up, you're out of luck. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, This is not why I call, but uh, along the lines of the peach tree, one of the peach, you know, I I, uh, thin them out by about 50% every year. Mm -hmm. And, uh, they're about five years old, four or five years old, and uh, one of the uh, the limbs on the tree this year just died. Is, is that what peaches will do? Yep. Okay. Yeah. It uh, and as they as they get older, as the growth slows down, they're also very susceptible to flat-headed borer that gets in underneath the bark and just eats its way around. Um, one good thing about that that we've learned is you can actually spray orange oil onto the bark it will penetrate the bark without and it's diluted a bit uh and uh it will penetrate the bark without hurting the tree and kill the borers underneath the bark so that may be something you want to get into as your trees really mature okay all right well thank you very much always a pleasure have a great sunday and a great saturday as well thanks tom thank you, uh-huh. bye. bye all right to the phone lines lloyd is first good morning lloyd good morning bob morning sir hi. Hey, I was wondering uh, if you could tell me the variety of the bougainvilleas that are daylight neutral, you know, that don't depend on short days and long days to bloom. They are, there are quite a few of them out there now. Um, probably the most common one, if you're looking for that good, brilliant red pink, is called Juanita Hatton, H-A-T-T-E-N. But just Juanita Hatton is probably the best. Now, there are... A number of others out there, Vicky, and uh, oh, there's a two-tone one out there. Um, uh, Vera Purple is another one that's actually a deep red that's daylight neutral. Uh, but the one that's most readily identifiable is Juanita Hatton, and it also has it has just a slight little variegation in the leaves. So you can, when you know what you're looking at, you'll know instantly if you're getting the Juanita Hatton. And it's it's probably the most free bloomering bougainvillea I've ever seen. Do you have those at your store? <laughs> We did yesterday. We didn't have nearly as many as we did the day before, but yes, we still have some nice ones, but my gosh, we got some hanging baskets that are four feet across. And let me tell you, I bring them in and they don't stay for very long. And, uh, it's, it's, 
sometimes hard to find a good supply, and the supply is limited, but yes, we should have some of them over there. Is there a, a like a purple, uh, I guess it would be a purple variety uh, that there, like purple? Yeah, there is a purple one out there. Um, actually, the purple and white one is the best of the re-bloomers. The problem with the one, and I'll have to think of the name that's just a solid purple, is that it's just a wimp as far as foliage color. The foliage just always seems to be a sickly lime green color. It doesn't get the rich dark green color that some of the others do so um and i don't think we have any of the two-tone ones right now we may have some of them in next week but if you're looking for a purple that's one that's going to be the prettiest plant with uh, good flowers as well okay all right well thanks for your help i appreciate it it's always a pleasure thank you sir <laughs> goodbye yeah. Bye. all right uh mary and then bill and then paul good morning mary good morning bob how are you this I'm morning very well this morning how about you I'm doing great. Thank you. Yeah, I love the smile in your voice. (laughs) I have two questions for you. Um, You were just talking to a gentleman about peach trees. What is the general life expectancy of peach trees? Um, Depending on how much care they get, probably 8 to 12 years. They're not a long life tree. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Perfect. And second question, and it is truly for a friend. It is not me. (laughs) Yeah, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here you go. How about crepe myrtles living in Albuquerque, New Mexico? See, I told you it wasn't for me. Oh, I believe you. Crepe myrtles do very well in Oklahoma, and they should do very well in Albuquerque. I lived in Albuquerque for five years of my younger days, and... um, They get substantially colder out there, but, um, you know, 19 years out of 20, they should do just fine. Uh, Some of the best new varieties of crepe myrtles have actually been bred by a fellow named Carl Whitcomb uh, up in Oklahoma. So I don't think Albuquerque's uh, any any colder than Oklahoma is. I was pretty young when I lived there and saw the snow and, you know, saw the cold. And as a kid, I don't think you feel it as much, but I I think crepe myrtles should be fine in Albuquerque. They will take... Uh, supplemental watering out there. Crepe myrtles are drought tolerant, but if you really want them to be full and bloom and do well, um, they're going to need probably a, a good thorough weekly watering. But Albuquerque's got a soil that should be fine for crepe myrtles. Okay, perfect. I'll pass it on. Thank you, Bob. Have a great day. You're sure welcome, Mary. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye-bye. All right. Love people with a good sense of humor. Um, let's see here. Yeah, I've got time to take a couple more calls in this break. Uh, Bill, good morning. Good morning, Bob. Thank morning. you for taking my call. Thank you for calling. <clears throat> Say, I'm uh, I'm calling from Carrizo Springs. Okay. And so it's usually about 10 degrees hotter here than it is in San Antonio. Right. But uh, I have a question about uh, single palms. Mm-hmm. I've had these for, uh, you know, a good 20 years, and they do good, but every year about this time, they get a little brown you know, on the leaves or whatever. Right. Uh, how often am I supposed to be watering these things? You know, and your soil drains well. I know down toward Carrizo Springs, most of that soil drains pretty well. There are a couple areas have a little clay. Are you in the area where the soil does drain rapidly? Yes, yeah, very sandy. I would, uh, I'd be watering them. But to really maintain that deep green color, I'd probably be watering them twice a week. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Well, I've been watering them about once a week, and I I, I felt like it was just needing more water. Yes, sir. Uh, 
they never do die or anything. Right. It's just they get kind of bleached out. Sunlight actually yeah. breaks down chlorophyll, and like you say, they uh, they just are not as attractive. But I think if you increase your watering and maybe give them a little liquid fertilizer or has to grow or something like that once a month or so, um, I think you'll be looking at that deep, beautiful, dark green color that you see uh, that, you know, that you're used to seeing other times of the year. Right. Uh, I heard you talking to a man about the little pups that come up around. Right. Man, I have just, these things just put out hundreds of them, and I, I, I just always, you know, I kind of trim them up. I just hate to throw those things away. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I guess I wish I had someone that I could just give them to because I don't, I really don't have any room to plant anymore. <laughs> but, uh, you already of, have a I forest. Just, I just, yeah, I just hate killing those things. But uh, anyway, they do. They make a lot of those little pots. Well, I'll tell you, if you stick them in pots and put some roots on them, I almost promise you, uh, you know, any of your nurseries down there around there, they'll probably actually trade you a few tomato plants for them. I can't imagine uh, uh, nursery turning down Sago Palms. Maybe make it be kind of like squash. I swear I had a friend that said, yeah, the only time of year we lock our house is during zucchini season, (laughs) and the neighbors will come and fill the kitchen up. But... uh, if if you've loaded all your neighbors or you know up with sago young sagos, uh, you'll find uh, one of your good nurseries down that way, and I bet you they'd love to have them. Um, I might try that. The but barter the barter system is alive and well in America. I promise you. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, Bob. I enjoy your program. I sure appreciate it. Appreciate the call this morning, Bill. Let me go ahead and get Paul in here before the break. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Uh, Bob, I have a uh, question on uh, St. Augustine. This is a very well-established lawn. Okay. It's beautiful every year. But I do encounter this problem, seems like, almost every year. Uh, and I'm beginning to start to see it now. There's just pocket areas where it looks, it's turning yellow. And I'm talking, this is a deep, deep green, mm-hmm. very healthy lawn. And uh, and it's beginning to, I'm beginning to get some yellow spots. And I gone in there and I'd pulled the grass out and it looks like it has roots but the roots are brown uh, and and the grass underneath looks dead you know okay um, and it's looking real pale and yellowy and it's the just bottom all the way up and it's just uh, spots here and there in your yard but where you see in these spots are probably three or four feet in diameter. Uh, no, they're not even that big. They're, uh, I mean, some of the areas are no more than eight, nine, ten inches across. You okay. know. Well, the first question is: this uh, front yard or backyard? Front yard. Okay. Um, could easily be neighborhood dogs. Dog urine will do that, especially in the heat, and um, I, that's I see that very, very commonly and. Unfortunately, uh, I wish it was your backyard because you could do something about it there. But uh, uh, that is the that is the most common cause of small yellow spots is just when the pups uh, choose that place to stop and relieve themselves. It it will sure create that in the heat. Now, if it were bigger areas um, in San Antonio, we have uh, areas where even in the same lawn. The soil will be very shallow one place, and underneath it, you'll either have a rock or a dome of caliche. And that also, and and the key really is if it shows up in the same exact spot year after year after year, it's probably just a place where it's much thinner soil underneath it. 
and it would be good during the cool season to put a little compost over that area, maybe put a little saliva sand out there to help hold a little bit more moisture in that area. Um, and, and that certainly wouldn't hurt in any event, but small areas like that, I, you know, and there's not a whole lot to do except, um, you know, where you can just get out there and wash things down. The, the problem with, with puppy dogs is the neighbor's dog walks by and chooses that spot to stop and relieve itself. And then every other dog that comes down the street has to visit the same exact spot. And there you wind up with yellowing, and then you end up usually with some brown dead grass there, even though it does grow back in the spring. So guess number one is dog urine. Otherwise, it's a problem of either some very thin soil or just, in effect, a dome of caliche underneath. And you will help that with a little compost, with a little bit of lava sand, maybe with a little bit more fertilizer. Now, I did I did compost very well. I mean, I, I'm talking, I, I had to cut this lawn at the absolute highest <laughs> level, you know, because it, it's that, that tall, that dark, yeah. that green. Yeah. But uh, just kind of throughout it's less green throughout but i think the heat maybe has a lot to do with that well and also also i would fertilize again because this year we had a lot of moisture up until about the first of july that led to a lot of that beautiful growth that you're talking about but unfortunately that also uses up a lot of the nutrients so if it's been if it's been 60 to 90 days since you last fertilized i make another application of organic fertilizer it does not to put that hurt to put that down in the heat in fact you don't even have to water it in but um if you have an overall with uh look with the light grass getting a little bit lighter green uh probably just needs a good uh good dose of you know nature's creations fertilizer medina fertilizer has extra iron in it that's probably going to green it up real quickly yeah okay well i bought your your kind your medina kind but yeah. the, that's the one that's yours yeah that's, that's, that's the one that i'm using now. well Stuart puts extra iron in it is what makes it a little bit different from the growing green but if it's been it's been 16 to 90 days since you fertilized i'd sure do it again all right okay well thank you very much appreciate your help always a pleasure paul thank you sir and <laughs> goodbye all right, it's going to be uh, Bill and Sherry and Ron, and uh, Bill is up first. Good morning, Bill. Uh, good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. Nice to hear your voice. Yeah, it's been a while. Hadn't had a reason, I guess. Been off to Deutschland or, <laughs> or just been doing yeah. other things? Um, well, we're going there next year for the Passion Play. Ah, very good. Yeah. Anyways, uh, boy, I don't know about other people because uh, sometimes it's for some reason, your app, I can't get to you anymore, so I went to Simple Radio, and that way I get to listen to you. I don't know what it is about your app. Well, I, I'm i not a tech guy, and uh, neither, all I do is come in I. and do a show. <laughs> but any, anyways, uh, this has been, to me, the greatest year for tomatoes, squash, cucumbers. Uh, it's amazing. I'm still, I don't know how many buckets of tomatoes I pick almost daily. Yeah. And and I'll tell you, people like a good cherry, my Juliet, (laughs) year after year after year, just, um, it's amazing. You never make enemies with ripe tomatoes, and it'll even get you a free cup of coffee and sometimes a meal if you know where to go trade. I know it. But the reason is we like to put up salsa. Uh Uh-huh. And for some reason, you you can tell me, we get a lot of this off the core, also in the seed cavity, this white, hard 
whatever it's called, mm-hmm. inside the tomato. It, it, you know, and I don't know. You can't really blame it on the heat because we've had almost what you'd call amazing weather. Yep. So can you tell me why on the inside? And that happens on the early girls. And I grew one this year called Pole Big. I don't uh-huh. know if you've ever heard of that. I don't know that one. But, it, but you know, you're you're getting to the heart of it. It's more of a varietal thing. Uh, some of the, you know, the ones that are what they call the meteor tomatoes are going to have a lot of that. And uh, it's just simply the tomato variety. You're going to find others that have virtually none of it and um i think you just need to kind of make notes i see very little of that in celebrity uh but i see a lot of it in something like beef master and big beef and your really really heavy textured tomatoes you have a lot more of that kind of i call it kind of a pithiness it's like a uh um, it's just a tougher tissue right in the core of the tomatoes. And uh-huh. they, you're getting that in a lot of your newer tomatoes just because it makes them ship better. They don't bruise as easily, and it's not what I eat a tomato for. I eat a tomato for flavor, but uh, it's not anything you're doing or not doing. It's just the tomato variety, and I would just you know keep records of which one you like best and uh, just concentrate on those and uh, maybe save the others for slicing. They're fine for a you know, nice slice of tomato on a hamburger, but when you're making uh, you know, salsa, when you're making pico de gallo, or uh, when you're canning, it's not nearly as uh, you almost have to cut it out. You almost have to core your tomatoes before well, you chop do. them up for yeah. other things. Yeah, But that that's more variety than anything else, Bill. So you're saying... Celebrity would be, what about Romas? Do you know if they have that? No, Romas rarely ever have that. Now, Romas will not have, Romas are going to turn softer on you. A lot of people don't like Romas, uh, you know, they they call it a paste tomato, and that's what they use uh, more than anything else to make spaghetti sauce and a lot of other things. So it's not going to retain its consistency as well as some others, but I've never seen a problem with that in the Romas and the Mamma Mia's and all the different Roma hybrids. Uh, much less likely to have that, but you, you may not like the uh, the texture of it as well. Well. Another tomato, of course, I won't grow it again because it just doesn't have the good tomato taste, but this prolific is called black creme. Yeah, black creme is, it's, it is a, it's a prolific tomato. I don't think it has the flavor of, say, a, a Cherokee purple or something like that. It's one of these tomatoes that's very high in anthocyanin, which is what gives mm. it its color, but um, it's, it's not as flavorable as some. You're, you're flavorful, yeah. you're exactly right. It's a little more tart <clears throat> to me. But anyways, uh, I just uh, wanted to know what I thought, if it's my soil, Sandy Lone no. soil causing that. But No, it's just it's well, just your variety. Better boy, big boy. Um, better boy, not as much. Big boy will have will have a little bit more of that pithiness to it, but um, that's one of the reasons uh, that uh, Parks came out, you know, after they had Big Boy for so many years, they came out with Better Boy because it was uh, actually a, probably a better tomato to eat and also more productive on a slightly smaller plant. So, yeah, I don't think mm-hmm. you'll find as much of it with Better Boy, but you probably find some of it with Big Boy. Well, no, I'll tell you, these 60-degree mornings have been sure nice <laughs> for July. Well, the day before yesterday, we were actually down in the 50s 
uh, over wow. in my area, and that's just unheard of. But it sure makes you smile when you when you walk out and have to ask yourself, should I put on a, a second shirt over the top of this? And <laughs> it sure doesn't happen very often, and I think it's about to go away. So So enjoy it while it's here. I know it. Well, good talking to you again, and uh, have a better weekend. Hey, it's always going to be good, Bill. Good to talk to you. And uh, let me get to the top of the board now and say good morning to Sherry. Hi. Good morning. Um, I wanted to find out, will a pygmy date palm grow in San Antonio? Until it freezes. (laughs) Okay. Unfortunately, yeah, that that plant's called Phoenix Robolini, and it'll take 28 degrees, but it most winters it's likely to freeze, and probably three out of four winters it'll actually freeze hard enough to die. It's just, uh, it's one of those, it's a pretty plant, but uh, I would be growing it in a pot and be prepared to either cover it or drag it inside because it just is not cold hardy here. Yeah, that's um, I'm done dragging stuff in. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, go with a go with a uh, a dwarf Mediterranean fan palm. It's going to be a modest size plant. The fronds are certainly different. There's something that looks quite like a date palm, but uh, if you want a palm that will be pretty in a pot, but it's going to be cold hardy virtually every year, unless we just have an intensely cold winter, pygmy date palm, or I'm sorry, a Mediterranean fan palm is going to be a nice compact plant, makes multiple trunks, and um, it's you're rarely ever going to have to worry about it getting too cold for that palm. And it'll, it, it, I mean, I like the 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 way the fronds are on it, mm-hmm. but I also like how it doesn't get real tall. Yeah. So will the Mediterranean, uh, if I get the dwarf variety, will it stay where it doesn't get more than maybe ten feet tall? Oh, it'll stay more like four or five feet. Okay. It is a different frond. It's not quite as open and airy as your pygmy date palm, but uh, it is, in my opinion, uh, a much better palm. And it's also multi-trunk. There's uh, something called a sayball palm that stays short, and it's a pretty little palm tree, but it doesn't make the multiple growths from the base, which uh, both your pygmy date palm and the Mediterranean fan palm do. I think the Mediterranean fan palm is just a prettier, you know, palm in a container. Uh, and it is much more cold-hardy. So that that's probably what I'd choose if you're looking for a true palm out there. And do y'all carry those, or Fanix? Do you know the best place to go look for them? Um, we almost always have some of them in stock. I'm not sure. You can always call Fanix and ask. But uh, um, we, we usually get them both 5-gallon and 15-gallon containers. And uh, uh, I'd have to ask Mark and Mike uh, what size they're getting over there. Okay, yeah, I will uh, call or go by your place uh, today. Yeah, I need the I need the smallest pot because I'm at two miles outside 1604 in sure. Blanco, and so you go down six inches and you start heat, hitting, <laughs> well, hitting rocks. If so. you if you can go down six inches, you've gone to, uh, down about four inches more than those poor people over in Stone Oak. So. Uh, yeah, no, uh, well, we'd love to see you. Uh, nursery's really beautiful and just a fun place to walk through. Okay, uh, very good. And um, on the putting out the molasses on the grass to help the soil get soft, uh-huh. 
What What's the ratio again on that? Oh, one to two tablespoons per gallon. Okay. Awesome. I don't I don't measure. I just pour. But uh, anywhere one to two tablespoons. More than that is just wasteful. Less than that is probably not as effective. So uh, uh, just just about a jigger full per gallon of water will work just fine. Okay, great. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Sherry. Thank you. Come uh-huh. on. Bye. Bye-bye. All right. It's going to be Ron and Martha and Beverly. And Ron is up first. Good morning, sir. Yeah, good morning, Bob. Good morning. Uh, a quick compliment. Uh, you have a competitor on another radio station that does a garden show. <laughs> I listen to it. I listen to it sometimes, and he has open lines about half the time. <laughs> you rarely do. Well, <laughs> you're, you're much more popular. <laughs> I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm very proud of the ratings, and very flattered by it, and very appreciated. Very appreciative to you guys that make it that way. Well, thank you. Um, and what time does Shades of Green open? Uh, nine to five Monday through Saturday, ten to four on Sunday. I will tell you, we're always there a little earlier, and we're always there a little bit later. But uh, if you want the official opening time, it's 9 to 5. Okay, well, I just need a couple of tomato plants. Sure, uh, we have a good selection my, my right question, now. My questions, I know somebody also asked you about Meyer Lemon. Right. I, I bought a Meyer Lemon about four years ago. It's in a big pot, and it gets it's, it's on the south side of the house. It gets a lot of sun. The first year, I had lots of lemons. The second year, I had some lemons. The... But third year, uh, I covered it because it was going to be a freeze, and it right. survived that. And it it put on blossoms, and this happened again this year, the fourth year. Put on blooms and never set a single lemon. I have no lemons for the last two years on it. There are two possibilities. Of course, um, the one thing that always comes to mind is just lack of uh, pollinators, but Rarely will that cause you to have no lemons at all. What I have seen happen to a lot of people uh, this year, actually this year and last year both, is we got enough cold at the time the lemons were blooming and starting to set fruit that it actually was cold enough to freeze that little developing embryo in the fruit without really doing a lot of uh, damage. And in fact, that that early freeze we had this fall did a lot of damage to the, you know, to the buds. So we didn't have as many blooms to begin with. We had a freeze later that actually happened after the little uh, lemons have been pollinated when that happens the lemon may grow up to the size of a pea and then it just drops off but there are a lot of people that have very few lemons this year and yet there are people who are just in a slightly warmer area whose uh, trees or bushes just loaded up so um, I think it's almost certainly you know just whether your 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 tree bloomed just fine it just didn't set any fruit yes correct yes, yeah correct it's the only two things that really cause that. Uh, well, and I'll take that back. One thing occasionally you could have a lack of phosphorus, which would reduce fruit set. But uh, if you're feeding regularly with any of the good organic fertilizers, that's not likely. It's almost always just either lack of pollinators, which is usually just means fewer fruit. When I see a tree just has no fruit at all, it's almost always weather related. Well, that would make sense. That would make sense. Yeah, I, I feed it with uh, has to grow. 
Uh, and then the second question, final question about it, it's in a pot, and I want to put it in the ground. And I asked this question once before, and I forgot your answer, <laughs> but I know I had the wrong time of the year, so sure. I didn't put it in the ground. Can I put it in the ground now? Yes, you can put it in the ground any time, but I would want to get it in the ground while it had a chance to get plenty of roots growing before the soil really cooled down. So, yeah, I think this is a fine time. Just remember, Myers Limit is cold-hardy down to about 26 degrees. Below that, it can be susceptible to freeze damage. So put it in an area that you can cover it because this, I just, you know, this weather is just, it's been a weird, weird year, and I've been on this earth a lot of years, but I just don't ever remember, well, I don't remember getting up to 53 degrees uh, mornings in the end of July, and uh, I just don't know what to think about uh, what kind of weather we're going to have this winter. It could be very mild, it could be, you know, extremely cold, but it this has been just a, a year of very, very um, a lot of weather extremes, so to speak. So, uh, uh, if, if you put it in the ground, just be prepared to cover it. And if we get really cold, be prepared to, you know, put actually a little structure of some sort over the top of it. And then do you prune these at all? I've never pruned it. There's no reason to prune. You always take off anything, of course, that sprouts out, you know, down below the graft line. Um, you you always take those off. But beyond that, pruning is just to shape it. And any time you prune, you're going to lose fruit. So unless it's just uh, um, out of hand as far as its growth, I'd, I'd just put the pruning shears away. If you find it necessary to prune, I'd recommend doing it in the spring while it's in bloom. And that way you can cut out the limbs that have the fewest flowers and therefore would have the least fruit leave the ones with the more flowers. But uh, pruning is strictly up to you. It does not benefit the plant. Okay. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, this has been an odd year. Until just recently, we've had a very humid, damp spring. Even though we didn't always have rain, it just seemed to be humid and, you know, a little mist and stuff like that. Yeah, it's been a strange year. Well, thank you so much. I'll ask you one one more question because you bring up a, a really good point. Have you ever heard the term evapotranspiration? Yes. That's, um, uh, you know, one of the things we look at with the groundwater district is rainfall versus ET, evapotranspiration. And evapotranspiration, of course, is how much water is going back up into the sky from evaporation and transpiration from plants. And this is the first year that I remember that several of our spring months that the, uh, the rainfall actually exceeded the evapotranspiration, which is the result of having those humid, cloudy days. And um, it's just been, you know, from a scientific viewpoint, it's been very unusual as well as being from just the the enjoyment factor. It's uh, it's, it's just been most unusual. Going to be interesting to see our consulting meteorologist that is one of the few guys I trust is forecasting that we may go back into a more moist fall. But uh, he's not making any bets about temperatures. So I guess we just wait and see. Well, you know, I love, I, I, I repeat this quote of yours. You said that uh, I was in your store one time, and we're talking about the drought, and, and, and you said, well, you know, we live on the edge of a desert where our droughts are interrupted by flash floods. <laughs> and <that's laughs> and I, I get a laugh every, or a nod every time I, I give that quote. I always think of that, and I always think of my old friend Alton Grimm used to say, when we're in a drought, he said, just remember, every day we're one day closer to that next good rain. So. <laughs> Ron, you have a wonderful weekend. It's always good to hear from you, sir.
Yes, thank you, Bob. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. We'll see you about Beverly. Good morning, Beverly. Good morning, Bob. Good Thanks morning. For taking my call. Well, thank you for calling. I have a little problem that I, I, it's a mystery to me, and I'm hoping maybe you can give me some uh, ideas of what may be attacking my potted plant. Okay. I, I have uh, evidence that something, uh, well, first of all, they ate the plants to the ground. Okay. Them, leaves, everything, flowers, and, and they're flowers. Okay. Uh, and then I went back out yesterday morning and found that they went in and dug holes into the pots and ate the roots and even my caladium bulb. So there is no evidence of ever having any plants in the pots anymore. Okay. That is most, um, well, the the eating, it's funny you mentioned this because my business partner was doing the same thing. She discovered the hard way that her garden was not as deer proof as she thought it was. But if they're actually digging things up and eating, it's more likely raccoons. Raccoons. Yep. Okay. So there's no, there's no deterrent to them. Is there other than catching them? Well, catching them and eliminating them uh, is the best plan. But as far as a deterrent, if you'll go to a good nursery and get a bag of blood meal, uh, blood meal is a good fertilizer. So it's, uh, you know, you're you're getting double duty, but uh, it's repellent to raccoons, to squirrels, to uh, possums, and even to armadillos. So unfortunately, it's not really a solution for a giant garden area because it just becomes, it can actually get a little... A little smelly if you have to put out too right. much of it. But uh, in containers, especially, just sprinkling a little bit of it on the surface just does double duty. It's an excellent source of iron, excellent fertilizer. And uh, the uh, most of the rodents, <laughs> and I just consider a raccoon a big rodent, but they don't like the smell right. of it and they go elsewhere. Well, will, they, uh, will, will blood meal also get rid of rats? Up to a point. Um, it, it will repel them. It doesn't kill them. Uh, I have to tell you though, I've had with, as a rat repellent, this product that is called fresh cab, C-A-B, you have to get it online. I don't know anybody that sells it in a store, but I have found that to be an excellent repellent for rats and mice. Okay. Okay. Very good. Well, I knew, I know that we have some because we have some neighbors that don't do a real good job of keeping their yard down. Yep. And so we've seen evidence of the rats, but I did not think rats would eat plants. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Rats are big-time plant eaters. Okay. All right. Well, fresh cab and blood meal. Fresh cab and blood meal. Those are two things I would try. And between the two of them, you should repel the rats, the squirrels, the raccoons, and all those other little critters you don't want to share your garden with. And you do not carry the fresh cab at at, uh, Shades of Green? We don't. They they don't sell wholesale to uh, distributors. Uh, We've looked into it, but um, they just say simply seem to be very happy with their internet business. So that's where I buy mine. Believe me, if there was an option, I'd be, I'd have it on the shelves, but they haven't made that possible yet. All right. Well, thank you so much for the information. It's always a pleasure, Beverly. Thank you. Goodbye. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Bye. All right. Let's see here. Uh, I think we've got Martha back now. Good morning, Martha. Good morning. Good morning. 
the fresh cab that you just were talking about, uh, is it like the blood meal where the dogs will eat it? You know, I don't think so. My dogs don't pay any attention to it. It's in little packets. It's not something that you actually sprinkle around. Sprinkle okay. around. And I have to tell you, I've used more of it inside than outside. But uh, uh, I've got a barn that's bigger than most people's houses. In fact, my barn's probably four or 5,000 square feet. And when you have a barn in the country, you have rats. And uh, it's been the best thing I've found to eliminate them. Okay, I think I'll put it under the hood of my car. <laughs> you know, that's no joke oh, because uh, no. uh, you can have a lot of wiring damage. And actually had a mechanic mm-hmm. tell me, and it's more in the Japanese imports than anything else, they actually use a cornstarch product in making the insulated coating on the wires. And that's why the rats want to get in there and chew up your wiring. Well, I was blaming the last one on squirrels, but anyway... Um, I have a strange-looking uh, sunflower that came up from my bird seed, and I'm okay. trying to produce seeds so I can grow some more of them. Okay. And it's I mean I don't know when to cut my seed head, my because it's when they turn brown or what. Mm-hmm. I've never done that. Okay. Yeah. Let them let them turn let them turn brown. Some of them turn black, some of them turn brown. But when you can look down at the seeds and the seeds seem to have pulled apart from each other, that is when they are mature, but it's uh, just ahead of when the little finches, goldfinches and things are going to try to come in and eat them. So, um, you know, sunflowers are what they call composites. Uh, There's a combination of what they call ray flowers and disc flowers. The disc Mm -hmm. flowers are the ones that make the seeds, you know, there in the center. So just be watching that carefully. And when you actually, when it looks like the little seeds are starting to separate, uh, that's going to be the prime time to collect the seed. Okay. And um, since we're on fertilize, um, the peach crops were tremendous this mm-hmm. year. Yeah. So I presume I'm going to need to give them a little extra food this year. Uh, it would be a good idea any year. And I would just use one of your good um, outdoor landscape foods, Medina, Maestro Grow, Nature's Creation. Any of those should be very good. Is that salon and garden or whatever? Yeah. Okay. Not, not necessarily a fruit one. No. Don't need to. Okay. You're just paying extra for the name. Third question, I should know the answer myself, but is this the end of the petunia season? Petunias, other than some of the little varieties, uh, yes, we're they're they're fading out, and all the petunias they may be pretty from a distance, but uh, yeah, they're it, it's for South Texas. I mean, this is the height of the season in cooler climates, but uh, uh, they're either faded to the point they're no longer attractive, or they're starting to die out completely, as they do this time of year. Now, some of the little tiny ones, the so-called VIPs, and uh, a couple of the ones I've got one that comes back from seed every year that's still pretty. But most of the petunias pretty much done for. Time for periwinkles yeah, okay. and zinnias and <laughs> you know, <laughs> angelonia. There's some other pretty things, but not the petunias. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, I won't think it's something I did. And leaf curl. My bay leaf, my uh, uh, lemon verbena. Yeah, that's just the okay. wide variation in temperature and humidity. Okay, and I think my bay tree has scale. What, refresh my memory what I spray with. Uh, neem, this time of year, okay. we'd use a dormant oil in the winter, but neem right now. Be sure your neem is fresh. Okay, I can, I can, I can set it on the porch or something to keep the sun off for a little while. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. Have a 
blessed weekend. You do the same. Rain. Yeah, we'll we'll do that rain dance, Martha. Thank you for the call. Well, you know, this is not the time to call. We'll save approximately the last half hour of the show for that. And then, of course, we do this for three hours again tomorrow. But right now, it's Dirt Doctor time. Good morning, Howard. Good morning. How's everyone? Everyone down here is experiencing another very unseasonably cool morning we were two two mornings ago we were actually down in the 50s up in the hill country this morning it was uh upper 60s when i left home but man i just this has been an unusual year it really has it was very pleasant the last couple of days i noticed here it's going to get up to about 95 today and uh maybe not too humid so man i'd be too bad, which is good because I'm going to spend the day working in my <laughs> own gardens and try to catch up on a few things today. Well, it's uh, if you're as far behind as I am, it'll be darkness will come before you run out of things to do. But uh, do you do you talk to many true meteorologists? Have you heard forecasts for what they think? Not that it's accurate, but what they're forecasting no, for winter this really. year? No, I don't. I've, I spend my time just looking into other things because I never have seen any consistency about the <laughs> advice that comes uh, from there. I'm working on a, a little bit of an uh, unusual project. I got thinking about, we're, we're, we're getting some incredible uh, reports back about this new uh, lava sand that we have run into, these people that we're working with. It's anecdotal stuff, but the mm-hmm. production in areas where they're using it is just through the roof. Really? And, uh, pe- people are just jumping around all over the place. So <clears throat> I think I'm going to do my next column. I've been writing about basic organic stuff. In fact, my next uh, column will be about uh, bed preparation. I uh-huh. haven't done that in a long time, and I kind of... Uh, updated it a little bit and made it a little bit more concise and easy to explain, so that'll be next. But I think I'm going to write a column about paramagnetism next, and I think I've probably subconsciously been avoiding doing that for a while because it's difficult. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, I know how it works, I know what it does, and I know basically, but as I look into it, the definitions uh, are kind of interesting on the uh, Internet, even on uh, Wikipedia the stuff there and there's one comment i've run into that i think is is pretty good well a couple that may make it easier for uh, the average joe to um, understand and i don't totally understand uh, all the the science of it myself but some people are talking about the fact that what paramagnetism is is the uh, radiation coming from the material in different you know different spectrums and Mm -hmm. different colors and that's that's a pretty easy thing for people to understand. But the one I just ran into that that's pretty good is that the material, like the lava sand, gives you a magnetic um, result. You know, it it uh, is a, it gives you uh, a force. Uh, I can't even explain it very well here yet, so it's going to take take time. The, the material has no magnetic properties that lasts, mm-hmm. but it gives you that magnetic property temporarily. And it's the opposite of what happens with what's in compost. Compost uh-huh. is diamagnetic. You know, organic fertilizer is any kind of carbon is diamagnetic and is pushed away from the poles of a 
of a magnet. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. there's no iron, there's no there's no ferrous in it. So we're going to work on this while we're going to come up with something that's very easy to understand. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> I'm going to give it a shot. I like thing, I like to think of it as an energy field. Is how I how what I tell people it creates in effect an energy field that impacts. Um, other metabolic processes. I don't know whether that's accurate or not, but that's 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 how I see it most clearly in my mind. That's that's a good way to explain it too. It just helps biological activity is what it does, you know, as the net result. But trying to explain sort of the uh, uh, the chemistry of it, how it works, the mm-hmm. physics of it, how it works, and everything is uh, is a tricky deal. Well, I will look forward to uh, to seeing the column and seeing the results. It should be very interesting. If you come up with any uh, other ideas, uh, let me know. I'm kind of revisiting some of Phil Callahan's things. I just ran in. In fact, one of the things that got me thinking about it, I just ran into uh, an interview that he did, and it wasn't with Acres. I've read those for years, and I've read his books, and this was an interview with uh, another group in Australia, and it's pretty good. kind of looks at it from a little bit different uh, angle. I may put that, if we don't already have it on the Torque site, Doug mm-hmm. may already have it there. He probably does because he, he gave me this copy, so uh, it may already uh, be there. Phil could, until the end, when he started kind of you know losing it, he uh, had Alzheimer's and you know, right. kind of drift, drifted away at the end, but... When he was lucid, I used to talk to him about, he could talk to you about any subject at any depth you wanted to talk, and it didn't matter what it was. You know, firearms, mathematics, physics, uh, crocheting, literally. I mean, it was unbelievable how much he knew about so many different subjects. And he made it simple when you sat and talked to him about it. But... uh, most people now don't really uh, believe in anything. You know, the universities don't talk about paramagnetism, the use of volcanic stuff at all. Mm-hmm. Yet you can do a re- you can do a search online for it, and there's all kinds of uh, papers and reports and interviews and things that come up and talk about it, including Wikipedia. You know, I I'm not sure I fully understand how it interacts, how it reacts with other things, but. Lava sand has lots of other good qualities in addition to the paramagnetism, but uh, I know one thing Malcolm always used to say is that when you've got that paramagnetism, um, your plants are more cold-hardy, and he always attributed it to, he felt like it helped the plants create more sugars, which of course is in effect creating an antifreeze, but uh, there's, like you say, it's largely anecdotal, but there's an awful lot of anecdotal evidence that it does positively influence plant growth. Well, no question about it. Yeah, this paper, they, you know how people will highlight one little quote out of a column and mm-hmm. blow it up, and one of the ones they blew up is that paramagnetism can affect the uh, water holding capacity of the soil by 50%, which I, I believe, I think that what it, I think it's uh, indirect. I think what it does is that it has this, this incredible power to build the biological activity in the soil, specifically mycorrhizal fungus. Mm-hmm. And when you have the mycorrhizae on plant roots, it increases the, the uh, volume of the uh, the root system, 
you know, mm-hmm. hugely, not just double it or triple it, but uh, many, many times. And I think that's where it's all coming from. When you got the biological activity ripped up real high like that, the, uh, the nutrients are more available to the plant. No question about it. And the complex carbohydrates build better, and that's where those sugars come from that build in the plant. And, and I, you know, it, it's such an interesting, and there's a lot of research being done right now on mycorrhizae. And uh, it's like you say, it expands. I've heard estimates up to 50,000 times more surface area, you know, which effectively is the, the spot where the translocation of water and nutrients is going to occur. But um, one of the most interesting things that I heard recently, and I've got to go back and try to find it on uh, on NPR in one of their TED Talks, they were discovering uh, a relationship between, and this is somewhere in the Northeast, between a deciduous tree and an evergreen conifer, and these groups of trees were separated by 100 yards or more and yet they could show definitively that these trees were sharing material. They actually, the one group of trees, the evergreens, they put something containing some of the traceable carbon, the radioactive carbon-14, and lo and behold, then they were catching this same um, carbon being transpired by the deciduous trees a um, couple of hundred yards away, and they what they have figured out, they've, they've dug and excavated and found that there was no root connection, but they discovered that the mycorrhizae were actually transporting some of this nutrient material from one tree to the other over a very substantial length of, uh, a very substantial distance, which I find just fascinating. It really is. One of the slides that I use regularly in my uh, talks is a a shot that I got out of a symposium that uh, Dr. Donald Marks was involved in years ago. He's one of the first Mm -hmm. uh, people that got involved in, you know, selling mycorrhizal products and stuff. And he was involved in a lot of scientific uh, meetings and so forth. And this one symposium had great uh, photographs in it. And I got permission from him years ago. I don't know if he even had had the uh, uh, authority, but he gave me permission <laughs> uh, to use. I think he did, but he, uh, to use the photograph of the pine tree seedling right, that right. Uh, I use in my talks. And you know, you said a minute ago it might be as much as fifty thousand times uh, more. When I was looking at the foot, at, uh, I still have the actual brochure, the, uh, the actual report somewhere. I need to pull it out and do a new photograph and leave the cut line on the photograph because what the cut line of that little pine tree seedling, one-year-old pine tree seedling says is that the mycorrhizae is a one million times more biomass <laughs> yep. than the root system. A yep. one-year-old seedling. Yep. So imagine what it is on a mature plant. And and the other thing that I don't fully understand, uh, now those pine seedlings, and apparently conifers are really good about being colonized with this ectomycorrhizae, which is what shows up in your slide so well and just really demonstrates it. But these endomycorrhizae that actually live within the roots and, you know, mediate different things going on that also seem to benefit the plants extremely well, it's... Uh, 
Um, just as soon as I think I've, I've really learned something about it, I raise more questions than I have answers to, but, uh, it, it all comes down to one of the difference in one of the things that makes organics so much more effective and that I think the mycorrhizae are one of the first things to be killed out by your synthetic nitrogen and, uh, uh, you know, a lot of the other pesticides and fungicides and things like that. And that's why, that's why the organic program, one of the many reasons the organic program works so much better. Yeah, if it doesn't kill it, it's totally antagonistic to it and keeps yeah. it from growing uh, properly. I think that the, that biomass that Marx and those guys were talking about included the both ecto and endomycorrhizae. Uh-huh. I'm, sure, I'm sure that it did. But anyway, I'm I'm going to continue to do research on it and try to uh, try to figure out some way to simplify the explanation of it. And we're about to have some side by side before and afters and and. Uh, uh, little research projects where this this part of the uh, orchard, uh, the, mm-hmm. the uh, grapes, was treated with the uh, lava sand in this area over here was not. And it's just uh, pretty amazing what we're seeing at this point. I'm, I'm seeing the same thing in my vegetable garden. And I, I think the the availability is, is one of those amazing products that can increase the water holding capacity without decreasing the oxygen holding capacity of the soil because, you know, people always blame water for killing plants, and it's not the water that's killing. It's the fact that the water has driven all the oxygen out of the soil, and the roots have to have the oxygen. But the lava sand seems to increase the available moisture without decreasing the available oxygen, and I think that's one thing that just makes it so outstanding on, on any crop you want to mention. I I mix it in uh, everything from potting soil to my garden rows in my garden, and it's uh, of course it only lasts fifty thousand years or so, so it's not something you have to repeat a lot of the, very often. No, but if you, if you increase the uh, the quality of it, which is the paramagnetism, mm-hmm. which can vary tremendously, you will see some dramatic uh, changes. One of the interesting things related to what you just said is that uh, oxygen is paramagnetic. Mm-hmm. So you know all this stuff is is working together. So. Well, how is this this new uh, lava sand that you're talking about, how is it being marketed? What name is it being marketed under? It's called Cinderite, and uh, it can, uh, you know, the, the people are selling it. Their website is CinderiteUSA.com. It's, y'all, y'all can get there at uh, Shades of Green by going, you know, just contacting them and, and getting it in, either in totes or bags. They've got it in bags now, and they're actually starting to sell it. Uh, online just so people can get it because it's not out there through normal distribution at this point but they want to they want to get it across the uh across the board the paramagnetism the current stuff that's available i th- probably have told you this is around 100 the yep. stuff that's coming from colorado and uh this is uh somewhere between 1500 and 2000 so oh, wow. it's a it's a dramatic dramatic difference uh very definitely i'll be looking for it Anyway, um, what else? Are you, what are you doing in your garden these days? I, I <laughs> find a few weeds. petunias, but I, I, I'm not petunias, but uh, periwinkles. And guess what? I discovered there's not uh, there's nobody in Dallas that's selling those small flowers. Oh my uh, gosh! Periwinkles. Yeah, it's amazing how long it takes for something 
that's really, really cool, like all these things that we talk about, to catch on in an area, in a market, when people are not used to, uh, to, to doing it. They're just still selling the regular, they're selling the Cora, the, you know, it's a good yeah. quality uh, periwinkle, but it's not the little small one that you're talking about. Well, the the little small one, if you want to know what to ask for, it's called Soiree, I think it's S-O-I-R-E-E or whatever, but it's the Soiree series, and there are four colors of it available now. I have to say it is more expensive. I think our growers initially didn't realize how much more they were paying for those little plugs, but uh, that may be a limiting factor for some folks. But uh, there is uh, sort of an orchidy color. There is a pink. There is a rich purple. And my favorite is still the white that has just that little bit of uh, uh, pink color in the center of it. But these things... It's just amazing how heavily branched they are, and it's not unusual, even in a four-inch pot in the nursery, to have a plant that has 20 or 30 flowers on it. And um, I know Roberta got one at one of the trade shows two years ago, put one four-inch pot in a clay bowl that was probably eight, nine inches in diameter, and that thing bloomed all summer. I would say at any point it easily had 100 to 150 flowers open on it, and uh, I, I I haven't decided whether I like it because it's different or because it is just genuinely beautiful, but it sure is a neat little vink, and it seems to be highly phytophthora resistant. Yeah, that's. Uh, I think the Cora is has moved that direction too, but yeah. the little one maybe be maybe is even better. I think I'm going to go outside my usual haunts today, make some calls, and and drive around, and go to some other nurseries, and see if I can find you know just anybody that. Well, soiree is the name you want to ask right. for, right. and uh, right. I, I wish you won't, weren't so far away. I <laughs> I bring you some of, uh, well, actually three colors. I can't find any of the white with the little red center. I made the mistake of talking about it before I said some aside for myself, and now the growers are out of it, and we're out of it. But I hopefully we'll be able to find some more. But it's a it's a neat little plant, and you know we were talking about. Uh, uh, plants for the hot summer. I forgot to mention uh, last week when we were talking about that. The other thing that um, we still like are some of the new zinnias. Um, I, I find that of the small ones, that profusion series and the orange and what they call the fire are very definitely superior to this. I can't even remember the name of the other company that's producing them, but uh, those and the uh, some of these new uh, dreamlands that are uh, reblooming. Um, though those are two things we're also using to get some color in the sun. Well, uh, I wondered if the zinnias were getting better. And how about the marigolds? Were they improving in uh, summer quality as well? They they are improving as far as heat durability, but unless people are, you know, and and if you're on an organic program, you're probably using the uh, liquid seaweed, which really does toughen them up against the spider mites, but. All the rest of the world is out there just letting the spider mites eat them up. That's that's still the big reason you don't see more of them in the landscapes. But uh, where people are just using a little liquid seaweed regularly, uh, it just pretty much knocks the spider mites out. And uh, and I love the marigolds. I, I think the smell of them is very interesting. And I'm, I'm still a big fan of the smaller flowered ones. Uh, I know these big old African marigolds are maybe a little showier and a good thing to have if you're doing celebrating Dia de los Muertos later this fall. But I still like some of the small flower varieties. Uh, they're just they're just different and pretty. I agree. 
agree. I had a question early in the show I wanted to ask you about um, the somebody we were talking about using garret juice to improve seed germination, and the fellow was asking about a really hard seed, and the one he brought up was a Pride of Barbados, and uh, asking if you should soak them longer. And I said, well, what I do is like to scarify them lightly and then soak them, but, you know, not necessarily increase the uh, increase the time of soaking. How do you feel? Do you think it 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 is okay to soak them for an extended period? Uh, I usually do 10 to 20 minutes, but he was wanting to know if he could soak them as long as overnight. Well, anecdotally, I have seen uh germination go downhill a little bit when I've soaked stuff for a real long time. Well, that's my experience. Yeah. I, I think that uh, soaking overnight is probably okay, but I think the better thing to do is what you suggested first there. You know, rub them a little bit on some sandpaper or something like that. You know, uh, physically wound them just a mm-hmm. little bit and, ju- and just soak them at the most a couple of hours. I think that's probably a better way to go. Some seed, and I usually tell people when they don't, and when I'm not sure about what's the best way to germinate them, I tell them to use all of the different techniques, even <laughs> give them a, a little bit of cold hours. Now, as what, and uh, you get the water and you get the carbon from the garret juice, mm-hmm. and a little bit of cold hours and a little bit of physical damage, you know, gives you kind of all the best odds across the board. If it's a tropical plant, you probably don't need the cold, but uh, Anyway, I, I think the physical damage to those hard seed really is uh, a benefit. Well, I think the uh, apple cider vinegar in there has also has a lot to do with. Uh, oh, absolutely! Both the, the speeding ac- the acidity is a big is a big part of it. And, but by the same token, I think that's maybe what reduces um, the germination if you leave it in there too long. But again, this is all anecdotal. But, uh, my observation is, well, and what I'm using, I plant more vegetable seed than I do flower seed, but you know, 15, 20 minutes soak on beans and peas and, uh, things like that. It just makes all the difference. Uh, and I would say it, it, it shortens the time of germination, but greatly increases the percentage of germination and squash, cucumbers, beans, peas. I just wouldn't be without it. I, I totally agree. In, in fact, one of the ways we used it, uh, when I was doing the research, uh, in the Vernon, Texas area, trying to grow grass <laughs> on land that had been dead 75 years. And we did it, but, uh, one of the things that we did there is the Bermuda grass seed that uh-huh. we were planting we put out on paper and we sprayed it we, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. with a with one gallon pump up sprayer we didn't even you know soak it in a dish or anything we, yeah. just, we just sprayed it and with a fine with a fine seed like that it's probably much better and uh if it's available parchment is what i love to use for that because it doesn't yeah. stick to yeah. it yeah, that's great. I might mention, yeah. too, and I, I need to give you or bring you if we happen to be, you know, passing through the same airport or something, uh, have discovered a new line of sprayers. It's a company called Centurion, C-E-N-T-U-R-I-I-O-N, I think. And um, because the Gilmores and all the ones we're using for a while, and unfortunately the ones with the uh, with the heavier-duty plastics, that company apparently just kind of went away but uh if you're looking for a good little pump up spray or anything from a half gallon to a two gallon check out this centurion line because they are super reasonably priced lifetime guarantee okay. and yeah, uh, i need to know that just just a good just a good little a good little sprayer all right i will definitely try that out i've had some people contact me about buying the uh 
sprayer that we used to recommend so highly, and then it kind of drifted away from being available, and that's yeah. the pump-up sprayer. Do you all still sell it and have it available? I don't have that. We're talking about the trombone sprayer? Trombone sprayer, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I wish we could find those. Those are – and because that eliminates the need uh, – well, you can spray large, long distances and anywhere yeah. you can carry a bucket, but have not been able to find a good trombone sprayer. But that's on my list. We're going to be doing a couple more nursery shows, uh, and I don't think I'll find them at TNLA, but we're going to do the uh, the West Coast Nurseryman show and then a couple of the trade shows. And that's on my list uh, to talk to people about because I sure do like them. They're, they're just so effective, so easy to use, and seem to be just the brass ones are just lifetime quality. They just just don't go bad if you place that little uh, leather cup washer every now and then. Yeah, if you just do a halfway decent job of cleaning them out, which I <laughs> didn't do with my last one, and it's all stopped up and frozen up, so I don't even have one right now. But that's something that uh, let's let each other know if we run on to a good source. My next speaking engagement, which you can see on DirtDoctor.com under appearance, is going to be interesting. It's coming up in a few weeks in Albuquerque, and it is a, at a cannabis <laughs> yeah, really? event. Yeah, I'm going to be talking about growing hemp and all of that uh, angle. We'll be with those Cinderite people there at the uh, at that event. And that, that's kind of, that was how they first got started with all this. They, they ran into some people who were starting to grow hemp where it was becoming legal to do it for the mm-hmm. CBD oil, and there was this, you know, real strong surge of interest in <laughs> the organic techniques yeah, to, start, yeah. to have a clean product. And he ran into this, he discovered this uh, lot of sand and knew how high I was on it. And so that's how we got together. So anyway, I'll be, I, there'll be more than just CBD oil being talked about at this event. I well, think. I, I think it's going to be... Of cannabis are, will be included, but... Uh, and that, I think you may run into the problem you, you mentioned with organics is that it may push the uh, THC level up higher than uh, you really want to do. But, yeah, you had mentioned that you and Doug were working on a couple of things. I, I look forward to getting a little more filled in on that. Uh, Dr. Kirby is very, um, very pleased with the results he's seeing it, uh, seeing with it in dogs. Um, and so we'll we'll talk about that at some point, yeah, too. But it's he's got a lot of uses. One of the things on the, the level of uh, problem where you'll have to burn your crop is uh, there's a fellow that's going to be there that I'm going to meet. That he's a, you know from the other side. He used to grow uh, the stuff you know to sell uh, marijuana, uh-huh. and he claims that he knows how to control it getting too hot. Is how they refer to it. You know. Yeah. Yeah. You you don't want <laughs> I, well let's just say I, th- that should be a fascinating event I'll I'll check out of course I check out dirtdoctor.com all the way anyway but uh, um, should be an interesting trip Albuquerque is an interesting place and I imagine that's pretty good climate for growing it but uh, it's interesting too I think I might have mentioned to you that Rodale is uh, looking at it as a cover crop and finding that it also does a lot of good things to improve the soil. So there, there's lots of fun things going on there. Well, one thing we can talk uh, in one of our next visits, I'm getting uh, into uh, conversations and getting more uh, closely to being phys- you know, directly involved in the emerald ash borer kind of thing. Ah, you know, okay. A&M is really... Uh, 
starting to talk about it a lot, and I've got some kind of research uh, grant situation, which is you know, how they get involved in things going. So sure. I'm I'm trying to talk to other arborists in other parts of the country, and so we'll talk more about that later. Well, we've got so much to talk about. In the meantime, uh, Chris tells me uh, Tater was in in good voice this morning. So give give our little four-legged friends uh, a big pep for me as well. And as always, thanks so much for sharing a little of your Saturday with us. We always enjoy it, Howard. Enjoy it too, Bob. See you next week. Look forward to it. Thanks. Bye. All right, Ms. Howard Garrett is the Dirt Doctor, whose website, dirtdoctor.com, by far the best on the Internet if you're looking for just a broad range of information that really is applicable here in Texas. Uh, Right now, we're going to talk to Sid, Nicole, Chris, and Angie, and Sid is up first. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Bob. Morning. I have have two Monterey Oaks. Uh, They've been in the ground for about 20 years. They're probably... 25 to 30 feet tall okay uh they flourished in the spot that i have them uh they are turning brown uh i don't know if they're dying or what's going on but uh pulled some leaves this morning and the leaves look fine uh just wondering if it's related to water stress from all the rain we've had this year or if i've got something else going on is this overall on the tree is it toward the tips of the branches it looks like it's starting at the tips Okay. And uh, and the tips have lost leaves. The uh-huh. further down the tree you go, uh, where the brown leaves are, the brown leaves are still kind of hanging on. But it looks like they're kind. It's kind of losing leaves from the top. Well, I it's it's certainly a root issue, and um, our problem is we went from being extremely wet, which uh, did some damage to the fine root hairs and all, and now we've gotten extremely dry. So. My way that I'm going to be handling that, if these trees are, you know, in the yard where you're, you know, can get a hose to them, um, just every chance you get, pick up and just spray up and down the trunk, the limbs, while those roots are getting reestablished, the the tree will actually absorb a lot of moisture directly through the bark. I'd probably be using a little bit of Super Thrive. I'd be using a little bit of Garrett Juice. I might even think about applying one of the mycorrhizal fungal products. You know, and this, of course, is in addition to being sure the root flares were exposed. But something is bothering the roots. You need to get those roots back, you know, in a healthy state as quickly as possible. And the Garrett Juice and Super Thrive, would you... When you're spraying the trunk, would you apply that to the trunk or just on the ground? It it will be absorbed through the foliage and the soft bark, but not through the really woody bark. So, uh, okay. yeah, I'm going to spray it on, but I'm going to probably concentrate on the soil around the base of the tree. Okay. Okay. I'll do it. Thank you very much, sir. Keep me posted on how it does. I will. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you, Sid. Bye. Bye-bye. All right. Next up is Nicole. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? <laughs> I'm I'm doing as well as I deserve. <laughs> I'll, I'll take a little okay. jab at somebody else. No, it's going to be a wonderful day, and I'm looking forward to it. How about you? It's good. I want to know how to get rid of cutter ants. They are stealing my hibiscus. Oh, man. They, they are tough. Do you know where the mound is? I found it the other night. Yes, they were carrying the plant into the hole the other night. Okay. Um, but they keep coming back. 
And have you done anything to try to treat the mound? Um, I borrowed some stuff from a neighbor, real stinky. I don't know the name of it, real okay. stinky stuff. Um, okay, tang- Tanglefoot yeah. is something that, you know, you can actually use on the plant. I'll talk about that in a second. But what the ants, of course, are doing is not eating the leaves, but they grow a fungus on the leaves, and then they eat that fungus. Sulfur is a natural fungicide and just you know 10 15 pounds of wettable sulfur over the top of that mound the top of that mound may be 10 feet wide it's a big underground chamber and sulfur seems to be one of the few ways to really um you know give a permanent solution to totally kill the mound out one other thing for people who are desperate is not organic, but people who say, you know, I've got to do something just instantly. You can take a piece of rebar or broomstick or something like that, get out toward the center of the mound and poke down into the ground. You'll feel it go maybe six inches into the ground and then you'll feel it break into that big chamber. And I've had people do things like take one of those room foggers, which I really don't like, but turn it upside down, trigger it, and then put a plastic garbage bag or something or other and literally fumigate the mound that way. My choice is going to be the sulfur. uh, But again, I've had people tell me they're just losing so much to the cut ants and the fact that the mound is out away from your garden. If you... If you decide you need to do something that's just almost instantaneous, that's another option. But uh, hibiscus are are tough unless you have trees. Uh, where they're stealing or where they're taking the leaves off of trees and things, tanglefoot is a really sticky material, but you don't want to put it directly on the trunk of the tree. What you do is wrap the trunk of the tree or the hibiscus or whatever else with a piece of plastic wrap or aluminum foil and then put like an inch-wide band of this tangle foot around on top of the foil or the plastic, and the ants simply cannot go across that. And that's what uh, people use on fruit trees. That's what they use on crepe myrtles, things like that. But hibiscus are tough because you just usually they're a big bush rather than a single trunk that you can use uh, use a tangle foot for. Okay. And my ferns are looking a little yellow, like they're not looking vibrant and green and pretty. Am, am I overwatering them, or can you overwater plants? Now, you, what I like to tell people, there's no such thing as uh, too much water, but you can do it too often. Uh, when you okay. water, you really need to flood. Are these true ferns or asparagus ferns? True ferns. Okay. Uh, it may also be a matter of a little too much sun. When you start getting oh. the July and August sun, sometimes you need to move them to a little bit shadier area. That lightening up is simply when the sun's bleaching out the chlorophyll faster than the plant can make new chlorophyll. So as far as watering goes, water super thoroughly when you water. When the soil is dry on the surface, it's time to water again. But um, if it's just showed up, shown up recently, um, it, it could be a little bit too much sun for them. Okay, do I need to maybe put some more um, fertilizer down for them, like some fresh uh, soil for them? I would certainly wouldn't hurt anything. Okay. Well, that's what I wanted to know. You're very helpful. Well, you let me know how it works out. I appreciate the call this morning. Thank you, Nicole. Right. Thank you. Certainly. Bye. Bye. You too. All right. Very good. Let's get back to the phone lines. We're going to talk to Chris and then Angie. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, everybody out there. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Anyway, yep. 
Hey, two little things. Uh, the vinegar, orange oil, and a squirt of soap. Mm-hmm. How long can that last after I mix it? In mm-hmm. other words, if I buy a gallon, mix it up, and now I want to use it a little today, a little next week, a little two weeks from now, will it's, it last? It's always better to use it fresh. Um, it, I know that. It retains some of its efficacy, but it will also blow the top off the bottle. Um, there is some chemical change that takes place over time. Um, I wouldn't worry about it uh, over a matter of hours, but a matter of days. Um, okay. Obviously, you've got something that you're using to kill things without doing a lot of damage to the soil. So I'm going to have to tell you just you know to experiment and see. And I'd I'd like to I'd like to know what you find. But my experience is that it becomes like I say it's hard to store. Always leave the lid on loosely so you don't build up a dangerous amount of pressure there. But I just find that it gets less effective if it's uh, if it gets very old. Okay, I had noticed that myself the, a little the bit after. Other week. other thing to tell you is if you are going to attempt to store it for any length of time, absolutely do not leave it in the sprayer. Pour it back into some sort of well, yeah, that, container. that I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah because it, mean, it'll sure eat the seals out of your sprayer. Right. No, I meant the gallon. You have a whole gallon, so yeah. I was saying, gee, I could mix it up and use it over a couple of weeks. Nope. Yeah, yeah, okay, no, but, mix mix no. it up in a quart bottle instead. Okay, I was, this was a thing I was going to do three weeks ago and ask you, but you were gone and then everything else happened. Tomatoes, too hot to set. Actually, my tomatoes now appear to be setting because we got into the cool weather again. Yeah, yeah. And once they set, pull them up. once they set, uh, they will, those tomatoes will develop, um, but it's it's time to get some fresh ones planted as well for the fall. The trouble is, these nice, beautiful, big, beautiful bushes are all now looking like they're setting tomatoes again. (laughs) (laughs) I think you just need a bigger garden. (laughs) Yeah, I know. A thousand square feet is not enough. Yeah. Thank you, sir. It's kind of like like we say about Texas ranchers. They don't want all the land in the world, just the land next to theirs. You got it. Chris, you get out and have a great weekend, and uh, we look forward to talking again. And... I guess we'll finish up the calls today with Angie. Good morning, Angie. Good morning, Bob. Good Always morning. a pleasure to talk to you and a My privilege. Pleasure. I would I recently in the fall moved to Lytle from the north side and I'm starting my garden this year, so I'm getting to know the red soil with the <laughs> caliche underneath. Right. And I I would like first of all to know I have a lot of um, the uh, mesquite trees with the mistletoe in them. Is that anything to worry about? Absolutely not. Absolutely okay, no great. problem. Mis- mistletoe has its own green foliage, so it's uh, sure it's taking a little bit of salt. Uh, it's taking a little bit of moisture from the tree. But I'll tell you, Howard Garrett has found that if you will go back to those old mesquite trees, expose the root flares, perhaps spray them, uh, with a little bit of garret juice, the mistletoe seems uh-huh. to shrivel up and go away. And um, okay. but it's mistletoe is not going to cause severe damage to your trees. But like so many things, it probably is an indication that those trees are under some sort of stress. And okay. um, check the root flares, spray with some garret juice, and stop worrying about it. Awesome. And I would like to plant a crepe myrtle, and I'd like to know what when to do that. You need plenty of sun. And uh-huh. you need to be what? sure. 
when you plant it, there's no such thing as too much sun for a grape myrtle. The more sun, the yeah, happier. Yeah, I've got a great, really open part of my circle in my driveway that I want to put it in. And almost certainly, close to 100% of the time, when you buy that grape myrtle, it's going to be buried too deeply in the pot. So okay. before you really even dig your hole, um, figure out how much soil you're going to have to break away from the top to get down to the root flare because you certainly don't want to be planting your crepe myrtle too deep. Now, crepe myrtles take a pretty fair amount of water, and really throughout their life, they like to be watered regularly. Once they're established, they will tolerate drought, but they will not bloom especially well. They won't be the beautiful tree you're looking for, but uh, just be prepared to give it very regular watering. You'll, when you first plant it, this time of year, you're going to be watering it probably every day. By the time it's established, you're going to be down to watering it once a week or so and keeping the root system mulched. But uh, don't make the mistake of just planting it and forgetting about it like some people think Okay, can. so I can plant it now and not wait till the fall? Absolutely. If you're going to be okay, there to great. take care of it, you can plant it this oh, afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> and when should I spray nematodes? When you have a need for them, um, nematodes are very effective against fleas and, you know, grub worms and other things. But I tend to, uh, I find when I use them for fleas and things, usually it lasts for two or three years for a need to spray again. The thing to remember about your nematodes is they move in a film of water. Um, If Uh there's enough moisture in the soil to keep plants alive, there's enough to keep nematodes alive. But when you first put them out to get them really dispersed through the soil, soil needs to be pretty moist. So it's either wait for a good rain or else water thoroughly before you put your nematodes out. Okay, great. Really quick, I've got my compost going, and my eggshells never break down. Should I put them in, or should I just They're not not doing any good. Eggshells, we don't need calcium in our soils here. That's why they're not breaking down, because our water is so alkaline. But uh, it's up to you. If you want to dispose of them that way, that's fine. But they're not really adding much to the compost. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. And I hope you have a wonderful weekend. And you work at building organic material in the soil. That's the main thing you're going to need to improve in the Lytle area. So use that molasses, use that compost, and keep up the good work. I look forward to talking again, Angie. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Sure. Bye-bye. Bye.